Dr. Andrew Huberman is a professor of neurobiology at Stanford, and he runs the Huberman Lab, and he is going to break down how our brain and nervous system and all our actions work. This is an amazing conversation. I can't wait to share it with y'all. This episode is brought to you by Zen Solar, zensolar.com, by Vivo Barefoot, vivobarefoot.com slash amp, and as always, on it onit.com slash Aubrey. Getting into this conversation with Andrew Huberman was beautiful because there's all these philosophical, psychological ideas that I've come to know through all of my reading, all of my research, everything I've experienced in my life, but he knows exactly what's happening in the brain and gives tools to go in through the nervous system to influence your mental state and emotions by actually taking care of the signals and the cues and the ways to modulate your body and your nervous system. So this is a phenomenal and highly pragmatic podcast, and it's really one of my favorite conversations I've had in a long time. So sit back, maybe take a few notes, but otherwise just enjoy this conversation with Dr. Andrew Huberman. But before we get started, a word from our sponsors. You've probably heard me talk about Zen Solar, and I think this is something that we're all aware of. Okay, I'd like to have solar in my house who wouldn't like to have solar in their house well zen solar makes it really easy for you to understand well is this going to make sense what's the type of money i'm going to save what is the cost of installation versus the savings i'm going to get from my power bill what are all of these questions how is this going to happen zen solar makes that absolutely easy you just go online go to zensolar.com check it out and they'll guide you every step of the way It is absolutely worth it to just check it out because you don't know the answers to that until you go through a process like Zen Solar. So please, for the earth, for your own home, for your own wallet, go to zensolar.com, check it out, and see if solar is going to be the right solution for you and your family. Our next sponsor is Vivo Barefoot, and I'm going to take a little time telling this story because I started my journey wearing shoes, wearing basketball shoes. And basketball shoes are designed for performance on a basketball court. And then, of course, there's a lot of kicks that kind of resemble basketball shoes or actually were basketball shoes at some point, but now are way too uncomfortable to actually wear as basketball shoes. So that's what I spend most of my life wearing, either basketball shoes or some type of cross trainer or some type of shoe that resembles a basketball shoe or resembles a cross trainer, just is way more stylish. And that's my whole life. Well, the thing about all of those shoes is it compresses your toe box. So if you actually look at my feet, I have my big toe and my pinky toe pointing together like they're making a teepee. And if you just extended the lines, I'd have a little hat on the top of my feet pointing together. And that's from all of the shoes that I've worn because the toe box is compressed. Now, that gives me toe pain and that gives me toe problems. And I started to notice that. So I started looking around when I was writing the book Own the Day. What are ways that we can get better shoes that actually have a much more open toe box? Vivo Barefoot stood out. My boy, Primal Swolger at Onnit, he was always rocking them, and they looked great. And so I got myself a pair. I got myself a pair of the boots, and I got myself a pair of the flats. And literally, I've never worn any other shoe more. Those little gray boots that I have from Vivo Barefoot, I mean, I'm wearing those things probably 60% of the time. It's just they're so comfortable. I can wear them with socks, without socks, and I just know that I'm actually giving my feet 
some love. So this is an extremely important thing to think about if you're an athlete and you want the longevity of your feet to be able to perform or if you just want comfort and style because these shoes are sexy. So check it out. Go to vivobarefoot.com, V-I-V-O, barefoot.com slash amp, and you'll get a 100-day free trial and 20% discount code. The shoes are dope, and you're going to be doing your feet and your whole body a big service. And lastly, we have Onnit. Now, everybody's heard me talk about Onnit. Why? Because I created Onnit largely as a solution to everything that I've wanted to have available for my own life. So it's just expanding the toolbox of all of the tools that are available. I actually had somebody ask me recently, they're saying, what do you do with all of the different supplements and biohacking techniques and everything that you're aware of? How do you fit it all in? And my explanation was really, look, I've spent the time to get familiar with all of the different tools, all of the different supplements, all of the foods, all of the practices. And I don't do everything every single day. That would be crazy. But I know which tool to apply to which situation to bring out the total human optimization that I'm looking for in that given moment. So that's how I do it. And on it is a huge indelible part of this process for me, and I know it will be for you. So check out everything we have on it.com slash Aubrey for 10% off always. Once again, onnit.com slash Aubrey. And now an uninterrupted podcast with Dr. Andrew Huberman. Dr. Andrew Huberman, we just had an epic conversation live on the Fit for Service Academy app about dragons and Bigfoot and how they're real as a sequence of neurons in the brain and we maybe will get back there, but that's not the way that I wanted to go. So <laughs> for anybody who wants to drop in with me and my guests before the show, just putting that out there, uh, get on the Fit for Service Academy app. I'm going live every time I'm in studio. And, uh, and this one was particularly special. But where I wanted to go is I wanted to get people, I want to take people on a journey with us here today. And I wanted to get people in the prime condition to receive this podcast in the best way possible. So there's obviously, you know, but from following your work, there's different ways you can prime the nervous system so that you can receive and learn information in the best way. So let's talk about some things that maybe some people will be able to do. Maybe you're driving and can't do all of them, but let's lead people through what we can and talk about the rest, about how somebody who wants to go into this podcast and get the most out of it, what they could start doing to actually get themselves in a prime condition to receive what we're about to share. Uh, great. Well, first of all, great to be here. Thank you. It's been a long time coming and yeah, it's a real pleasure. Um, so I think one of the most fundamental aspects to our biology, not just our brain, but our body is our level of alertness or calmness. You know, you hear all this language around parasympathetic nervous system is rest and digest and sympathetic is fight and flight. I like alertness, calmness, because the, the, we can just move away from a bunch, bunch of fancy language. It's there for people if they want to look it up, but it's not necessary. So I think that one of the most important questions that we should all ask ourselves anytime we want to learn or we want to relax or we want to sleep or we're in a, you know, in a situation where we need to receive hard information, whatever it is, is ask ourselves, you know, where are we on this continuum of alertness and, and sleep? So when we're fast asleep, we actually can learn in sleep. We could talk about that if you want. There's some really cool stuff about Man, that could have saved me a lot yeah. of time. <laughs> but, but basically we learn best when we are focused and alert, but not too stressed. And then when we cycle that with periods of deep rest and not just sleep, but when we go into states of 
They can be shallow naps. They can, it can be meditation, but really it's going into a state of what um, is most easily thought of as wordlessness. Mm -hmm. So I would say as people listen to all the words coming through the airways on this, or they watch this, once they get to a point where they feel like, okay, there's a lot of information, it might be dense, or I just want to consolidate that or get the most out of it. It's fine to just go into a state of wordlessness, pause it, just let your mind drift for a little bit. And then the mind likes to focus back on things. It likes to focus on and off things. And so one way to do that is we can control our level of alertness or calmness really easily. And it's anchored in a really cool medical textbook finding that I think for all the people who are interested in breath work, they'll find this, I hope, interesting. For people that aren't, I think you'll find this useful too, which is that when we inhale, what happens is our diaphragm moves down. That creates more space in our thoracic cavity and our abdomen, and our heart gets a little bit bigger physically. Blood flows a little bit slower through there because it's bigger, it's just like a bigger pipe. So whatever blood is in there is moving a little slower. And there's some neurons in there called the sinoatrial node. They send a signal to the brain, says, wait, blood's flowing slow. The brain sends a signal right back to the heart and speeds the heart up. Okay, so what that means is anytime we inhale, every inhale we ever take, we're speeding the heart up a little bit. So it's like an accelerator. Mm. So if you want to be more alert, like let's say you feel like you wanna be more alert for whatever reason, you can make your inhales longer or more vigorous. So if, so if I, somebody right now is like, oh man, I'm just kind of sleepy. Maybe I'll listen to this podcast. Maybe I need a coffee. Right. I don't know. Then do 10 prioritizing breaths. the yeah. inhales would be the way to go. Yeah, do 10 breaths that where the inhales are longer than the exhales and you will naturally wake up the, the alertness system of your brain and body. And this is literally a, a, a relationship between the diaphragm, the heart, and the brain, and back again. And the, the opposite That's is also- That's very much like Tumon breathing or the Wim Hof method, exactly. right? Exactly. You know, so he, what he teaches is deep inhale, fully in. Right. That's right. And then just let it fall and out. And then let it fall out. And when people do it like heavy exhales, they're doing they're kind of balancing it in the, the way that wouldn't be like classic Wim Hof or classic Tumon. Right, right, Tumo. right, right. And, Which is a mistake that I think a lot of people make when they're trying to do the Wim Hof is they'll go- Right. Right, you know, because it gives you that high. When you right. blow off a lot of air, does two things. One is you blow off a lot of carbon dioxide, which gives you a greater capacity for long breath holds, which people kind of get into the competitiveness with themselves around breath holds. So Wim Hof or Tumo, right? 25 or 30 breaths, like you said, you're supposed to inhale and then let it fall out. If you really push the exhales, then on the breath holds, you can go twice as long because the, the impulse to breathe is controlled by a set of neurons that detect carbon dioxide. So when you exhale a lot, you don't have the same impulse. You can sit for a long time. This is why doing it near water or in water is bad. People have died doing it that Shallow way. Shallow water blackout. Shallow water blackout because you don't feel the impulse to breathe. So if the other thing is when you exhale, it's the opposite situation. It's pretty cool. When you exhale, the diaphragm moves up in your body. The lungs go and this whole space kind of gets compact. The heart's smaller. Blood moves more quickly. That sends a signal via neurons called the sinoatrial node up to the brain and the brain sends a signal back really fast to slow the heart down. So this is why inhales make you more alert and exhales slow you down and calm you down. And this is why things like yoga nidra or breathing of the like two in, hold for two, seven out, those will tend to make you sleepy. Mm. And as you fall asleep, you do this naturally. You start to breathe longer and longer on exhale. So for people who have trouble sleeping or for people who right now are feeling a little too keyed up and they wanna relax, or anytime people want to relax, they should just make their exhales longer than their inhales or more vigorous. So you can just go like empty your lungs, like 
just dump air. Mm. And you teach a very specific breath. So this is something for me. I I lean towards excitability. Mm-hmm. And when I'm trying to, you know, do a podcast, I got it on two x speed, and and I'm trying to do other things. Well, then I forget what I'm like. The, my tendency is to try and go a million miles an hour. So actually. I use some of the breaths that one of the breaths in particular that you started teaching with that, which is two short inhales followed by a long sighing exhale. Right. So the physiological sigh, as it's called, and it's called that because it was actually discovered in the 30s by physiologists. This is not breath work. Actually, everything I'm talking about is not breath work. What I'm saying is inhaling is like an accelerator on a car. Exhaling uh, isn't really like a brake. It's more like coming off the accelerator. And then there is a break, which is the physiological sigh. And the physiological sigh is two inhales, ideally through the nose. So it's inhale. And then you sneak in a little bit of air before you exhale. And that little sneak of air does something really cool. It might feel a little sharp. What it is, is as you get a little overactivated, your lungs are two big bags, but they have millions of little sacks. Like if we were to lay them out, they're about as big as a tennis court, like mm-hmm. a regulation tennis court, huge volume of tissue. And as you get stressed, those sacks collapse. They flatten out like little balloons that are empty. And if you've ever blown up a balloon at a kid's party or an adult party, you're, you need to sometimes blow twice. It's the double inhale. What that does is it inflates those sacks so that when you exhale, you dump the maximum amount of carbon dioxide. Yeah. This also works really well. So you can do this anytime you're out and about, you're feeling a little stressed or somebody's talking you know, like, oh, this is stressful for whatever reason. The double inhale exhale is the fastest way that I'm aware of to just calm down. Yeah. And so it's very useful. You can do it in real time. The other thing is if you're running, like you want to hit steady cadence, like zone two cardio, the double inhale exhale, this is some stuff I'm playing with with some various groups. So not all the data are in, but a lot of people benefit from doing double inhale exhale, double inhale exhale while they're in steady state cardio because it immediately maps to your heart rate variability. The heart starts going in sync with your breathing. And the other thing it does, which is pretty wild, is that you have a connection called the phrenic nerve that um, controls the diaphragm, the skeletal muscle. But it has another branch, which goes to your liver. And if you've ever been running and you felt like that stitch in your side, you feel like you're cramping, that's not really a cramp. That's actually liver pain. It's called it's called referred pain. And sometimes there's a shoulder pain that goes with it. Mm-hmm. It's usually actually on this side. And that's because all the neurons live in the same segment of the spinal cord. So if you do the double inhale, exhale, when you get that side cramp, it disappears. Cool. And so it's not really a cramp. It's some like a it's a kind of like referred uh, liver pain. So the double inhale, exhale is a very powerful tool. And it's what dogs do right before they go down for sleep. It's what people do when they're in claustrophobic environments. So if you get a bunch of people in a in an elevator, especially nowadays, you know, you're like in a lot of places, you're masked up, you're in the elevator, you're like, and people will immediately, without realizing, they'll start doing this double inhale, exhale to try and dump carbon dioxide. That's uh this feels like basic human operating information, right? And and I think one of the tragedies of the situation we're in is we aren't taught basic human operating. I mean, this should be kindergarten, first grade, second grade. Okay, kids, you're feeling a little excited? Okay, try this breath. If you're mm-hmm. feeling a little sleepy, try this breath. Let's learn how to work our machinery a little right. bit. You I know? agree. We don't, in this culture, we do not teach people how to operate their mind and body. And, and it leads to all sorts of problems, stress, anxiety disorders, ADD. We don't guide there is no guidebook for social interactions, for sexual development. It's super, it's a huge problem. And I think that 
Um, the brain is harder to, you know, identify like a user's manual, right? Because it's always meditation, consciousness, high-level concepts. What do dreams mean? The really interesting stuff. Right. But I like that we're starting with physiology because what's nice about these core mechanisms of brain-body is that they are real things. Like if we could point to the neurons, these are things in the textbooks. There's nothing mysterious. It doesn't require any learning. Like once you know how to do it, it works the first time it works every time. You don't, meditation is, has actually, unfortunately, I think has taken us off track as a culture. We got so obsessed with mindfulness that we kind of had this whole thing, let's have people meditate and whatnot. But you know, meditation involves some focus. And sometimes sure. people just want to like not focus. They want to get out of their head. So there should be, I think, tools for how do you get out of your head when you're spinning? Well, and the meditation arc is focus, focus, focus. Then eventually you can settle into right. that place that people are going for. But right. most people don't ever get there. That's right. So they just get into the adding more focus to their thing and getting frustrated That's and right. saying, nah, screw this anyways. Right. right. You know, it's like people are talking about the payoff. But until you understand the state that you're going, until you have a basic understanding of the human operating system, like much better to just learn these basic nervous system cues. Like the fact that somebody can know the date of the Treaty of Versailles before they know that increasing your inhales will increase alertness and emphasizing your exhales will help out with calmness. That's insane. Yeah, it's criminal really. I mean, it really is. I mean, I think that, and also we give people driver's licenses and uh, you yeah. know, all sorts of things that sure, you know, that was an exciting part of my youth development and we finally got the, the driver's license, but I didn't know how to drive my my body and my brain and work with it, you know, to work with your physiology. I mean, everybody has a kind of, on this continuum, it's more like a seesaw of alertness and calmness. Everybody, and we're kind of like this little body running along that seesaw, you know, and at night is when we just kind of lay down next to the seesaw and just kind of let that all be and dreams, let the seesaw do its right. thing. But we don't learn how to do this. And, um, you know, as, as a kid growing up, I mean, you see the huge range. I saw the huge range. I tend to be a little bit more on the activated side. People are probably picking up on that. You know, even with caffeine, I tend to talk a little fast. Some people are a little mellower. They're like my bulldog or, you know, yeah. <laughs> or our friend Kyle, right? Yeah. He's got a huge energy output, physical energy output. That's clear. I've never trained with him, but that's clear. He can, he can, you know, get after it, but he's, you know, some people are, are more like that. You seem very calm. A lot of times how we feel inside isn't how people perceive us on the outside. But I think that just that ability to move the seesaw a little bit to make ourselves feel more comfortable or to be more accessible to what people are saying. Cause we know that when we are overactivated, it's great for focus. It's great for taking what we already have stored in the memory bank in terms of what we know how to do. And it's terrible for receiving new information. We mm. need to be in that sweet spot of like a little bit on the calmer, more relaxed side to be open. And I, I mean, I don't want to overinflate the value of these tools, but I, a lot of what I see today in terms of problems of like in-group, out-group or us against them or them against us kind of stuff is because people are just too keyed up. Right. They're not in a position to hear anything except their own thoughts and beliefs. Yeah, they're not in that, in that, what you would classically archetypically call the feminine state of receiving, which requires a state of to be in receiving or listening. You know, for any of us who know, when we get too amped up and too hyped, we just can't wait to talk. Yeah. We're not even hearing. We're just waiting for the pause. We're detecting the pause mm -hmm. in the dialogue yep. that somebody else is spewing at us. Like, yes, 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 yes. Now let me tell you about me. And okay. then it's in that queued up state. But that's a nervous system function. And I think that's it's such a key lesson. And then, you know, for our sake, for the start of this, I think you summed it up there. What we want when we're here to learn and we're here, we want to find that sweet spot, mm -hmm. you know, of enough, of enough attention to really focus. But 
not so much that we're going to be so excited we're going to be thinking about a bunch of other things but drop into that equilibrium that Mm -hmm. equanimity state Mm -hmm. right there in the middle so and then using these breaths wherever you are at home now or listening like go for it Mm -hmm. you know like do whatever do whatever a couple it doesn't even take that much i mean i talk about it in my book on the day there was a japanese study six deep breaths without even the focus on just deep breaths changed blood pressure changed brain state like it doesn't take forever you know maybe it's not one breath but by six oh and you're making changes and people can you know repeat this two or three times to get to get into that clear common focus state right and everyone's gonna that's gonna differ by what's going on in people's lives it's gonna differ by way of what they're doing in the moment you know and and you know, there's been so much focus on breath work for the kind of peak experience stuff like Wim Hof, Tumo, Kundalini, which is really a value. I mean, it takes you, that's the opposite. That's more like training your own stress threshold. It's more like the ice bath. It's mm-hmm. like throw yourself into a state and then try and calm yourself with all that adrenaline in your body. Because when you breathe really fast and deep, adrenaline is released in the body and there's that impulse to move. And when you sit there and you deliberately you know, dilate your gaze and calm yourself down. What you're doing is a form of stress inoculation. Mm. It's just that as my colleague at Stanford, David Spiegel says, he's a medically trained serious scientist hypnotist. He uses it for pain management and breast cancer and all this stuff. He says, it's not just about the state you're in, but how you got there and whether or not you had anything to do with it. And that's the other thing. Kids don't learn to direct their own state. They don't know they can do it. And yeah, so agency, autonomy, sovereignty right. of our own emotional state, rather than the world constantly doing something to us, we can say, okay, world, I see you and I meet you. Oh, you're going to push these chips in. Mm-hmm. I call and I raise you with my breath to exactly. actually control the situation. And I'll win the pot of the moment that I'm trying to actually navigate. And in, yeah, absolutely. And, and we give people all these mantras about resilience and mindfulness. And these are powerful terms. What we, we tell people, just do it. But what we don't do is give them tools to access these states more readily. And for people that are lucky enough to have the time or the or come into contact with people that help guide them down a path, like they get some crucible experience early in life where they go, wow, I felt like I was very close to death or close to panic and I recovered myself. It's powerful, but you know, you don't want to have to die. You don't want people putting themselves into harm's way in order to achieve these things. And it's really quite simple. And I also sometimes like to play with the idea that other animals may actually do this and we don't. I mean, I don't know whether or not mother eagles like ask the little eagles like, hey, you feel like jumping out of the nest right now? (laughs) I'm pretty sure that levels of fear are really high. So they like push them out and those things, and they, so they have to do it in the experience. Sure. There is something kind of interesting about sex and reproduction itself, just from a purely biological standpoint is it goes through this full arc of this seesaw. And I think um, this is also just textbook physiology, which is that the arousal response, regardless of what someone's chromosomes are, XXXY, doesn't matter. The arousal response involves being in a state of calm to calm and alert, not too alert, right? Because the so-called parasympathetic nervous system actually creates the arousal response that makes males and females able and receptive to to have sex, to reproduce of all species. That's why if you're really nervous about your sexual encounter and your adrenaline's high and your heart rate's at about 100, especially if you're, you know, 
if you're male, if you have a phallus and you're actually trying right. to get engorged, that's a difficult spot to be in. Yeah, it's and a difficult for, and, spot to be in with your BPMs at 120 if you're trying to actually operate in the bedroom. You can ramp up to that at a certain point, but right. This is why people who um, take drugs like amphetamine and cocaine, there are a bunch of sexual side effects associated with high, with those with that, right? Yeah. Because they're just in two high levels of autonomic activation. So, so like the most fundamental thing of any species is to make more of itself. Okay. I mean, in age appropriate consensual ways, but that's the, I mean, every species from a moth to a human, that's, there's more biological machinery devoted to that than to anything else, because that's what biological organisms want to do. Even bacteria, that's what they want to do. Viruses don't have a mind, but that's what they're trying to do is reproduce. So they infect things and they reproduce inside the genomes of those things. So the, it's it's so interesting that in every species from a mouse to a human, there's this process of reproduction that's almost like a test for being able to maneuver along this seesaw. The arousal response is dependent on a certain level of relaxation, but also alertness. You can't be completely asleep, okay? Then there's the actual physical act of sex involves some motor control and output. There are actually neurons in the spinal cord that control all that. And then it's very interesting that orgasm is actually a heightened stress response. It's, on, it's controlled by neurons in the sympathetic nervous system, meaning neurons that are the same neurons that are associated with the stress response. And then there's a rebound relaxation response afterwards, which is set by this hormone prolactin. Now, why am I going through? This is kind of like biology of reproduction 101. The reason is, is it's interesting. It's a test of, a, of two organisms to be able to coordinate their levels of arousal, meaning low to moderate levels of arousal, then high levels of arousal, and then low level arousal again. And that low level of arousal afterwards, the kind of like calm and sleepiness that, and mellowness that occurs after, that is thought to be, I don't know, because I wasn't here at the design phase, but the uh, no one consulted me. I wasn't involved <laughs> in designing these circuits. This is just how they work. But that calm afterwards is thought to be in order to exchange pheromones and, to, and for pair bonding. Yeah, because in some species, like very polygamous species, I'm sure oxytocin species, is that is flooded. At that flooded point. in males and females, yeah. prolactin and oxytocin. So all this is to say that that our most core, the most core feature of our biology is to make more of ourselves. And I'm not saying everyone should run out and have children. I don't have children, so I, how could I say that? But, but the practicing has virtue. Practicing has virtue. <laughs> practicing has virtue. That's what, and that's, in every, that's what I'm taking from and this. And in every species, you know, sex has been associated with with circuitry of um, touch and somatic sensation that is pleasurable, right? And dopamine and serotonin, all the kind of feel-good type neurochemicals. And so it's almost a test of the autonomic system to be able to reproduce. And so again, it's like these are, these mechanisms are, they're not as simple as digestion because digestion, you don't have to do anything. A baby just drinks, ba you know, um, milk yeah. from mom or milk from, a, from formula and it digests it, right? Same thing with breathing. Babies just start breathing. Um, some of these things are, are certainly learned and the social dynamics of how to interact with others, you know, kids playing, you have to be able to get hurt and still play in the game or see that another kid is hurt and slow down and help them out. So all of these very basic functions are the, the kind of test bed for how to be a functional adult. And, um, and I'm not saying that people should be having sex earlier than is healthy for them. There's a whole psychosocial development component here. Um, in fact, I'm not telling people to do anything. I'm just saying that there's, our biology is primarily for taking us through these adventures of arousal and relaxation. Waking up in the morning is an exercise in, in autonomic arousal. Cortisol hits when you wake up, boom. Can you do that without 
losing your mind in thought and obsession? Yeah. Can you l put your head down at night and fall asleep without losing your mind in the previous day's events? These are skills that we have to cultivate. It's, it seems like while you're not recommending anything specifically, you can rec recommend the genre of putting yourself through stressful situations to cause an adaptation and build the resilience towards that's right. it, right? So In healthy, non-destructive exactly. ways. Exactly. So, that's right. And there is a line that you can cross. Any hormesis oh, sure. that you're trying to target can, can become injury. There you is know, you, such a thing as water that's too cold or a sauna that's too hot. Yeah. Right? It, yeah. it does You'll exist. You'll just hurt yourself. Yeah, you, know, you or, can die. Or a workout yeah. that's too hard, yeah. you know, where you get yeah. rhabdo or something else right. happens. That's a, this is not helpful. Mm -hmm. The stress right. is too strong. But if you follow like those principles of hormesis, of putting yourself in challenging situations that you have sufficient resources to recover from and isn't such an acute stressor that you get hurt, that is going to benefit you on every different level from the physical body to the nervous system, to the psyche, mm -hmm. to even, you know, although it's a different mechanism, absolutely, even in your own spiritual practice, you know, these challenging spiritual experiences, these dark nights of the soul, talking to anybody who's in that dark night of the soul, which obviously has a lot of physiological and mental aspects as well, but it feels like a spiritual crisis. These are what propel the greatest spiritual growth in many cases. So yeah. that principle of learning these different mechanisms, both how to modulate, but also training yourself to be stronger, to be more resilient, to know that I got this. Whatever the world's going to throw at me because the world is full of chaos and mystery and challenge, and it's going to come at you with a left hook you didn't see, mm -hmm. always. Always. And so to know that you're resilient and that you can handle it, you can modulate in the moment, you've been through challenging things, this is a core lesson that I think all of us can really adopt and embrace if we want to navigate this life to the best degree possible. Yeah, I think that we, you know, we've spent as a culture, we've spent a lot of time thinking about kind of the core things like get a good night's sleep. Because obviously um, the way I think about sleep and rest is when you're not getting enough or, and it's different from everybody for everybody, but if you're not getting enough sleep on a regular basis or you're just too stressed out, it's like the hinge on that seesaw is loose. So it's like, yeah. you're up, you're down, you're all over the place. And so there's some foundational practices of sleep, hydration, exercise, social connection, um, good nutrition, whatever that means for, for the individual that put you in a place to be able to manage things really well. But what we've been talking about up until now are these, what I call real-time tools. You know, I love the ice bath. I I've done tumo breathing. I still do it. I really believe it in its virtues. There's some good science about how it helps activate the immune system, all these other great things. But the ability to adjust in real time is what it's about. Because that's, I think, where real confidence comes from. Like mm -hmm. you do a lot of public speaking, I do a lot of public speaking, and there's still days where I'll show up and I'm, you know, all of a sudden, like I'll feel my cheeks getting flush. I'm like, what's going on? I have to be able to adjust in real time. Yep. It's not sufficient to be like, oh, you know, I'm gonna go meditate for an hour or what did I do wrong the day before? And this is what it's, it's is a lot like driving a car. Or reaching for an exogenous substance, right. which you can also, when you're, when you're, replete of the tools that you have endogenously it'd be like fuck i need caffeine or maybe i need yeah. some well i need some kava and you have this whole tincture and it's fine to have a medicine bag i got a medicine bag too it's i got one right over there on the table it has some hape has some different tools in there and i like these exogenous tools but to combine those with the endogenous tools because i'm not always going to be able to say hold on i need to clear my energy and reset here on stage if you wouldn't mind sit with me for 10 minutes in silence while i go through this hape ritual 
Like that's not going to work. Well, and I think, know? and I'm not certainly not going to recommend people take anything I, or not take anything. It's not my place. I always say I'm not a doctor. I don't prescribe anything. I'm a professor. So I just like profess a bunch of things. You know? <laughs> I mean, I can certainly talk about what I do or don't do, but the point, is, but that's very individual to me. So I don't know how interesting it is to people, but I do think that everyone should know how to manage their internal real estate, their mind and their body with do, do's and don'ts of physical practices of just you know, practices with that don't involve ingesting anything. It also puts you in a position to better navigate those extreme states, right? I mean, the person who decides to dabble with nicotine, like not by smoking, but taking nicotine for focus, if you can't handle and manage your mind in a very alert state, it's just going to make things worse. Mm. You'll think that you're in a, in a tunnel of focus, but you actually are in a tunnel of high stress and nothing good comes out of that. Whereas if you've already mastered what it is to be really alert and focused and you wanna take that to the next level and you're an adult and it's you know, appropriate for you and your health status, then you're gonna get that much more out of it. And whereas I think a lot of people look first to like, what's the thing I can take? And it's like, well, the thing you can take is master your sleep-wake cycle, master your moment-to-moment -moment kind of autonomic regulation, this calm down, get more alert and do it with some breathing. Or if you like the ice bath, do that. Or if you, um, if you want to, you know, run up a steep hill and then see how quickly you can calm yourself down using double inhale, exhale type sign, that's cool. There's a huge play space that you don't need to take anything. And then once you feel like you're working well there, well then sure, maybe it's appropriate to go down the avenue of, you know, supplementation or other things which is ideal for learning this as kids once again yeah because you're not gonna you know nicotine is super bad developmentally uh, it, before it's just 25. gonna screw up neural circuits because neural circuits are so plastic the right. kids are gonna end up totally dependent there's actually a phenomenon when you take nicotine a lot at a young age the receptors for nicotine internalize and then you can't get them back it's hard to get them activated. I, I was a thought came to mind. I'm sorry. I here I interrupted. I did no this problem. thing, but I was I didn't grow up riding motorcycles. I don't ride motorcycles. But if you ever see these kids that ride motocross, you ever see these like I'll see Instagram posts these little tiny kids riding these little mini bikes when they're little, <laughs> and then they get older and then they're like supercross riders. Right. Whatever is going on there, or I grew up in kind of skateboarding culture. That mini motocross world seems to understand a principle, which is you don't give a little kid a big bike. They can't manage it. That you teach them to manage a bike, a larger bike, a larger bike, a larger bike. And then eventually they're doing all this incredible stuff. And we we need to, I think we need to adopt the same kind of view of our bodies. Yeah. And and I know you've talked about this before on previous podcasts and um and a bit in your book and other teachings, but you know, in these small tribal cultures where humans evolved, there was a passage down. We knew more or less what was appropriate for exposure at a given developmental stage. And we were able to hand that down. And now it's just kind of like it all comes in at once through this, you know, fire hose of the internet. Uh, and I love the internet, but there are no filters on it. So you get it all. Yeah. Like kids are seeing, you know, porn really young. And so that's a fire yeah. hose of of information. Uh, you know, that's the first it, time in human look, history the, ever. The first you know? porn you should see, like if you're going to follow this, like it should be a Playboy magazine with pages. You know, like if you're going to follow this same idea. And kids now are exposed but that's, to that's the, And that's the way it was when I was a kid. Like, oh shit, Johnny got a Playboy. And it's like, damn, okay, you keep it this week. You know, and it was I'll like keep, a library. Yeah. The secret library. It was the secret library. Yeah, there were some you, kids you in ride my on area. your bikes and you're like, oh, bring goodness. are you gonna bring the thing? You're like, no, I wanted like another two days. Like, oh come on, man. Yeah, this you know? is bring back memories because there would be a kid 
who would like stash. There's always been these secret libraries in, <laughs> in, the, in suburbia where kids would stash things for other kids to go see. Nowadays, it's all coming in through the internet and there's no filter. And so they're able to, there also were no other people to kind of digest this information with. It's like, I mean, it's a real problem. I, I mean, the, so. the, the porn thing is so, it, it's such a concern because of what it means at a sensory level, at a chemical level. And I'm not, you know, I'm, I am not here to regulate other people's behavior, but it's just, it seems to me that it's like the, um, and here I don't ride motorcycles, so I'll get this wrong, but it's probably like, it's like a 350 CC bike, you know, for yeah, someone that doesn't for know, a 10 year old. for a little kid, right? And it's just, it's, 100%. It's, it's not only inappropriate, it's dangerous. It's hard enough to ride the porn bike as a grown ass man. It's, it's, it's intense. Yeah. You can take a corner too fast and you're spinning out into some weird territory where it's just gravel, you know, and like I'll allow everybody's own mind to right, sure. go to their own yeah, place they, where they're like, take that where analogy the fuck where did were. I go? Like this is, it's intense. And I think it's an unaddressed issue. Like it's, this is the reality. This is the playing field that we're in. But the fact that nobody, everybody's just kind of like, la, 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 la. Let's, let's just either say porn is bad and pretend that people aren't doing it or, it's just we have these blanket responses i think largely because we just don't really know what to do with it and the filters that are trying to block people don't work because they'll always find the kid who doesn't have a filter right. on his phone and but ultimately coming up with solutions collectively as a humanity involving intelligent people like yourself and involving experts who can be like all right let's take a look at this issue from a developmental standpoint from a moral standpoint from all of the different standpoints that we can look at what is this causing what can we do to help educate people on how to deal with this, whether it's already happened or whether it's about to happen or whether you're a parent? Like this is the future that I envision. And I think we're gonna have to take control of that because it's not gonna come from our you know, elementary, middle school principal. They're gonna not even wanna touch this with a million foot pole, right. nor a high school. This is gonna come from awakened people who are like, all right, let's look at these things. Let's not shy away. Let's have the courage to stare straight at this problem and then not look away until we have a solution and we've brought in the experts to really deal with it. And it's just one of myriad different things that all of us need to collectively come together and say, all right, this is what are the basics for teaching somebody how to be a human, like how to human effectively. Mm -hmm. Here are the challenges. We no longer have you know, different animals that are gonna eat us coming from the bushes, but we have these things online, bullying that's gonna come and look at the suicide rate and how it's gone in for this is a real tiger there's real tigers out there on social media platforms both sexual predators and you know peer bullies and then there's these different exposures that are far more extreme than what people should be looking at whether it's images of people dying or whether it's images of you know sexual material these things like all right these are the tigers now so let's prepare our our generation and ourselves shit and ourselves let's not say that we're all good because well, growing, growing up. up now i mean i can't even imagine what it's like i mean the young brain is so plastic it's also better equipped to handle things like i um i have a 14 year old niece and she was saying you know everyone talks to us about the phone and how the phone's so terrible but they grew up with the phone mm. so i'm 45 so i had we you know i was able to adopt it but it's part of their being actually there's <laughs> there's actually some reason to believe that we always know where our phone is that the phone Actually, we might actually have brain space devoted specifically to the map of where our phone is, uh, which is just crazy to think about. 
But also the phone is almost like another brain area in that it, it's a memory store. Yeah. It has a lot of information about us. And I don't look at it all as being terrible and bad. I think of it as the way you're laying it out is exactly the way I think about it, which is this is the reality. We can't hide. We need to, it's not even about shining light into dark corners. These, this stuff is out in the open now yeah. and we can't keep the blinders on. Yeah. And, and it's tricky, I think, because no one wants to take the high moral ground stance and say, look, I'm going to restrict access to everything, you know, and because then people get upset about personal rights and freedoms, which I can understand. Sure. I don't like my personal rights and freedoms restricted, but then no one, there's no, uh, there's a real lack of conceptual leadership. Um, like what should a, a 16 year old know more or less, what should they know about themselves and about other people? We can't even agree on that. Um, you know, what should any adult know about 16 year olds mm -hmm. at this stage? And it's, we're, we're in a tricky, but I think an exciting space. I mean, I'm, I'm an optimist. I, I think, um, I get the sense that maybe you feel this way too, that I look at this as a huge realm of possibility. Sure. It's just, it's risky, right? Even me as an academic at a big institution, you know, I, I try and anchor to physiology because I want to remind people I'm a scientist first and foremost, but I care about culture and people and animals. That's what I care about most. And it's um, it's tricky to just to stick one's neck out there and say, hey, like this is an issue we should probably be paying attention to. But this dopamine thing, it's yeah. not just about amphetamines, cocaine, and and um, you know, all the all the bad sinister stuff. I mean, that too, right? Destructive drugs and heroin and all this, you know, that's bad. And so is violence, and of course, and all these terrible things that we all agree are terrible, but there are a lot of other monsters and animals that are being allowed to roam around freely to stay with your analogy that are roaming around freely and then we're kind of shocked that people are getting clawed up and eaten mm -hmm. not to be too overly dramatic about it but it's time to have the conversation yeah you know yeah i think that's uh i think that's the that's the key here and it is an exciting time i mean we look at we have all of these movies about the wild west and there's people rolling around with guns that they were trained in and an argument over a card game could result in your death you know like we're not in that world anymore At times were tough then too times were tough times oh, dysentery were always, I yeah mean, times I mean, were always tough I mean, I mean viruses and bacteria they love to infect things and um sexual reproduction has been one way that they have hijacked human behavior in order to continue to propagate themselves again they don't have a mind viruses and bacteria don't have a mind so sexually transmitted diseases were were far worse around the turn of the last, not in the last century, but you know, in the early 1900s, far worse. People, you know, syphilis, all this stuff. I mean, fortunately, the rates of those kinds of things are going down. Yeah. Um, so the, so death the, in childbirth, but so now we have the monsters have changed. The monsters have changed, but there's been a gap. There's been a long lag, and mm -hmm. I and I'm. I, it's interesting you're bringing this up because I uh, didn't know that we were going to end up on this, but I'm. It's such an important issue to just be able to look at the the hard stuff we think about is darkness, but it's just kind of the, it's the reality. It's what we've, it's what human beings have created. Yeah. You know, we can't look to uh, the atmosphere or to, you know, some alien species that came down and, and, you know, bestowed this on us. We, we, we made this situation. Yeah. Talking about hijacking the dopamine system. Um, and we veered a little bit from our story. So of people getting ready to digest this information. So hopefully <laughs> now, now they're already, we're now, already, now we're already deep in, in it, we're already so. deep in. So uh, I was listening to Daniel Schmachtenberg, actually talking to him on the phone, an incredibly intelligent guy. And he was talking about how IBM created Deep Blue 
to face off against Garry Kasparov, the world's great chess master. And it was based on an algorithm, an algorithm to, pay, to play chess. And I don't know how many. Ryan, if you want to look up when what year that was, but whatever, it was a while ago. And they created that, and Kasparov won the first games. They, they tweaked the algorithm, and then Deep Blue came back, and it beat Kasparov, and it was never going to be beaten again by another human being at a certain point. He was talking about how the social media networks have algorithms that are more sophisticated than the algorithms that beat Garry Kasparov, a chess master, at chess. And those algorithms are designed to keep us engaged by hijacking systems like the dopamine system and keeping our attention, right? 97. Okay, so now in 2021, you know, these algorithms are more advanced as technology goes and require far less hardware to actually implement. And he was saying Kasparov knew that he was facing a computer and he was trying to beat it and he failed then. And the algorithms now are more advanced and we don't even know that we're up against them because they're sliding in, you know, behind the scenes and we think we're just doing something. So I don't necessarily want to go into commentary on social media because I think it's a beautiful tool, but it is just one of those challenging things. It's like a big wave that we all have our surfboards on. Some of us think we're surfing when we're really getting chundered in the whitewater. Some of us are surfing. Some of us are some combination of both because we're not really aware of what's happening. But when you're talking about these algorithms hijacking the dopamine system, let's dive into that because there's so much that's been talked about with that. So what is actually happening? What is the dopamine system and how are, you know, how is the social media really tapping into that incredibly powerful system within the body? Yeah, so super important is issue and super interesting and very misunderstood aspect of our biology. So dopamine is what's called a neuromodulator and I mentioned that only because neuromodulators modulate the brain. They make it more likely that certain things are going to happen and less likely that others are going to happen. So think of them kind of like a playlist. And I like to think about the kind of four playlists as neuromodulators, just to really simplify things, but make them clear. Serotonin does a lot of things, but in general, serotonin makes us feel pretty relaxed, blissful, and good with what we have, what we all, the relationships we already have, the food, our state of mind and body that we're already in, okay? If you ramp up serotonin really high, people tend to lose their appetite, lose their libido, and feel really blissed out, but kind of flat. It's, it kind of kills desire because why would you go after everything, anything, if you already have everything you need? Satiation. It's satiation, exactly. The other one would be acetylcholine, which is released from a couple sites in the brain, but it really creates focus. It's kind of like in this huge array of things that are happening around me, pictures on the wall and our conversation, words and sensations and the weight of the clothes on my body, what am I gonna pay attention to? It just kind of creates a spotlight in the brain. And then dopamine is really can be thought of as the molecule, not of pleasure, but really of motivation and desire. Dopamine is about wanting things, mainly wanting things that are outside you. So if we ramp dopamine up with a drug, let's just take the extreme example, like um, cocaine will do that or amphetamine will do that. Well, we, you can actually take exogenous L-dopa. Yeah, you could take macunapurines, the velvet yeah. bean, that's sure. L-dopa, it gets converted to, that will make generally make people more alert and in pursuit of things and externalize. They'll talk a lot, they'll think about things they want. It, it's the molecule of motivation. And in healthy levels, you know, um, well, let's just say at extreme levels, it creates mania where people feel like they can buy anything, do anything. It's all about 
other stuff. I am Doctor Manhattan. Yeah, exactly, I it's delusional, right? Yeah. They delusional yeah. thinking, right? I'm sending yeah. my avatar to <laughs> make sweet love <laughs> to you right now. Exactly, like extreme <laughs> externalization, and it does have a feel good component, but it's not quite the like shot Man, in the I arm. I want to kind of take that much dopamine to be yeah. Doctor. <laughs> well, just, well it's interesting because like high, like schizophrenics who are very paranoid, delusional. Yeah, um, they respond pretty well to drugs that suppress dopamine, but too much suppression of dopamine is Parkinson's. It's depression. Mm. It's that the movie Awakenings, it's this like catatonic thing. It's also involved in movement. So when your dopamine levels are high, you feel motivated. And I mean, nature and biology are so beautiful. They created this simple playlist where when you're motivated in the mind, it also makes it easier to move because you're motivated for external things. And with serotonin, when you're satiated, in your mind, it also makes your body more still. Like there's this mind-body relationship that nature is so efficient. She mm -hmm. doesn't come along and say, let's build this circuit for this and that for that and build 20 different chemicals. It's like, let's just keep this really simple. So even though I'm pushing away a lot of the details of how these molecules work, it's like they bias us towards action. And so mm -hmm. dopamine biases us to want more of something. And it has this interesting pain-pleasure relationship. So. It's fascinating. I always thought that, you know, um, I'm not a, really into chocolate, but for people that are, they'll eat a piece of chocolate. And if they really like chocolate, they'll get a little surge of dopamine. You would think that that surge of dopamine, because it, if it were just pleasure, then you wouldn't want any more. But that surge of dopamine makes you want more chocolate. And if you don't eat chocolate right after- Wait, is it the, is it the act, actually them getting the piece of chocolate, which is something that they want, which is the reward that they want that's actually increasing the dopamine? Or is it there's some compound in the chocolate itself that has dopamine you know, compounds in it? It's both, it's both. Yeah. And, but dopamine doesn't care about chocolate per se. So some compounds, like for the cocaine addicted person, like this really tragic situation where someone wants cocaine, they take cocaine and they get more dopamine, it becomes this vicious loop. And I, you know, and that's what creates addiction. Whereas with most things that are wired into us, sex, food when we're hungry, water when we're thirsty, dopamine is gonna drive our motivation. If you've ever been really thirsty, that water tastes amazing. Yeah. It's just, it's like, it's like this elixir from the earth. It's incredible. You feel like you're being flooded with it. And generally it makes us want more of that thing. Now, eventually the, the serotonin system kicks in and we have satiation. The reason why drugs of abuse, it's kind of a broad sweeping term, mm -hmm. but let's just say an addicted individual, it, the, the real tragedy in that situation is that if the dopamine system is too active for too long, it creates this progressive narrowing of the things that bring us pleasure. That's how I define addiction. It's a progressive narrowing of the things that bring us pleasure. And so on the phone, when we forage for things on the phone, it has certain components of addiction, but the more that we look at what's going on, there's certainly dopamine release, which makes you want more of it, but we're getting less and less pleasure from it as we do it more and more. Mm. And that's the hallmark of addiction. It also, the phone also it's has- It's like a, chasing the dragon. It's chasing the dragon. Cause there's this, the way that the, the, the chemical circuitry works, the neurons in the brain that control dopamine release is when you expect to get something and you don't get it, two things happen. There's a, literally a disappointment circuit. You get a drop in dopamine and then you need more to get back up. This is, sounds just like drug seeking behavior cause that's what it is. But also then when you do get that thing, it doesn't take you up to the level that you need in order to feel really, really good. And so the phone thing, I think when I look at the biology of it, 
of dopamine and I look at phone behavior, I think early on it mimics addiction. It's like, whoa, this is really cool. There's so much information. I even There's feel- a message from my friends. There's a compliment on my post. There's, there's a, some validation that I'm getting from some source. And sometimes it's also just the cool things you find. I'll find a yeah, podcast. Sure. I'm like, or I found a lecture the other day that I is amazing. And I was like, I can't believe it. There, there are gems in this little device. I, there's no way I could access this information. Absolutely. And I was like, this is fascinating. And I was taking tons of notes. So that's dopamine. But then what happens is it starts to take on the form of obsessive compulsive disorder. And I don't think this has been talked about enough is it starts becoming like if our phones were out and we weren't being good about it and we didn't have some sort of contract or you didn't say, yeah, I put away my phone during conversations. We, if you pick up your phone, I pick up my phone. Mm. The moment we'd wrap, we go to our phones, you know, and there's nothing criminal or bad or rude about that nowadays, but it's that kind of behavior is a lot more like OCD. And OCD taps into these brain circuits called the basal ganglia, if people want to look them up. But what's really interesting about these brain circuits is they're involved in two decisions that you make subconsciously. One is called go, which is to reach. The other is no go, which is to not do something else. So every time we do something like reach, it's like flexor extensor. When you do bicep curl, your, your triceps are, unless you can actively engage them with your mind, you're really not engaging the tricep and the reverse is true for a tricep extension, the bicep releases stretch, it's extensor flexor. Every time we do a behavior, we are inhibiting other behaviors. And so what's happened is the, in, in OCD, these circuits get totally whacked out basically where dopamine starts to activate them in the wrong sequence and certain behaviors just start to become like reflexes. The phone has become like walking now. People, I, I wake up, I, I know exactly where my phone is. No doubt. I tell myself, don't look at that thing. <laughs> and I reach over and I'm looking at that thing and I'm like, this is a waste, don't open that app. And then 20 minutes later, I'm like, I spent 20 minutes looking at that app. Yeah, I'm I hear you. And I, I just talked about this story. This is a great example of this. I'm in the middle of ceremony three in ayahuasca down in Costa Rica at Soltara, blasted and in the toilet on the bathroom going in there i'm puking into a purge bucket i'm shitting into the toilet full purge on ayahuasca all of these incredibly deep and challenging visions and things are going on but i'm sitting on the toilet and i've trained myself every time i sit on the toilet i get on instagram and so (laughs) what did i do i go reach down into my pants because my phone's always in my pocket down around my ankles and I go for my phone and I have this flood of realization, like what the hell is going on? I don't even have my phone, obviously, because I'm in ceremony, but it was so deeply ingrained that even in this radically different state of consciousness, that addictive pattern was that deeply ingrained that I was still reaching for my phone. And at that's, that point. and that's no, and I would say that that's OCD. Like, because OCD is obsessive thoughts and it's these compulsive behaviors. The C mm-hmm. is the compulsive part. And and that's, so I think what's, one of the things that um, hopefully this conversation will open up, I don't think I've ever heard this discussed um, publicly for the, um, so hopefully it, people will start to think about this is that yes, the phone is addicting, but you weren't reaching to your phone thinking, oh, I'm really excited to see what's on Instagram. No. You did it as if it were a compulsion. Absolutely. It's still dopamine, but once we start to treat the phone thing as a compulsive disorder, as opposed to, and the word disorder is a little loaded. I wanna be clear, like, sure. cause as the moment I say that, you know, and this is actually coming from somebody who had, I had a tick when I was a kid. I had a grunt <clears throat> when I was little. And no one knew what that was back then. And then over time, I learned to kind of suppress it. But if I get really tired, I find myself <clears throat> doing it. So I am sensitive to the fact that 
I was never medicated. I just kind of dealt with it. But so I'm sensitive to the fact that disorder brings up all sorts of feelings. But and I don't say that to be politically correct. I just want to acknowledge that when I say disorder, in this case, I mean everybody's behavior to me, if we were to take an image of how humans are behaving, you'd say they all have OCD. They're like animals in a zoo cage that are like the parrot that's plucking its feathers. That's not addiction. And so it's no longer about feeling good. There are times on social media where I go, this is pretty cool. This is amazing interaction. I teach on social media. I learn on social media. Sure. That's beautiful. That's a mixture of like dopamine and serotonin. It's beautiful that I can go on there and learn from people I never met and benefit from that. And I think OCD is the problem. We need to break obsessive compulsive disorder in billions of people or else we're gonna end up so far down the tunnel of this thing that, I mean, already people are avoiding other adaptive behaviors. They're not working on social development. They don't know how to interact face-to-face. -face. Um, they're not taking care of their physical bodies. They're starting to look like a, you know, like a poorly drawn letter C, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's terrible. And, and I'm not a doom and gloom guy, but I think the first nature of solving a problem is identifying what the problem is. And I, to me, it's, yes, it's dopamine. Yes, it starts out as kind of addictive and exciting, but pretty soon it's obsessive compulsive disorder. Yeah, I mean, that, that makes a lot of sense. And, and what you're saying about disorder, I think is, is actually an important conversation in itself. There's a, there's a magical line that the DSM or whatever kind of authorities come up with say, okay, across this line is a disorder and a pathology and yep. it has a pharmaceutical yep. that you need to take. And yep. before this line, okay, it's normal, but that's not all, that's not real. Everything right. is on right. a spectrum. Right, that's Any, in a book. Yeah, yeah. that's just like yeah. a bunch of, it's literally a bunch of people like the Council of Nicaea that made the Bible, like a bunch right. of people around like, what do you think about this line? And they're like, who also have yeah. their own set of problems. Sure. Right. And it's like, yeah. let's put the line here. And then all of a sudden, right. so just understand everything is a spectrum. And right. so when you're saying this, we all have a certain disorder to a certain degree. We all have trauma to a certain degree. We all have, Absolutely. it's this full, full spectrum. And to recognize, okay, here I am. And that was clearly a compulsion. It was a thoughtless compulsion. I didn't have any aim for my phone. I went to it. It's the same thing I do in the morning. Just like you said, I wake up and I have a compulsion to reach to my phone. It stimulates something that actually mm -hmm. brings me to a state of awakeness. I know, I know better. And I can regulate myself if I wake up at like 7.30 and I want to sleep till 9.30. That's my objective. Mm -hmm. I know for damn sure not to get on my phone because the moment I right. get on my phone, it's fucking game over. Right. Right, so I can regulate that behavior then, but the moment that I do know that I am getting up for the day, the first thing I'll do is reach for that phone. And I wrote about how that's not the way to own the day in the right. book, yep. but it's become such a compulsive thing and it's not severe enough. Same when I go to the bathroom, even after my ayahuasca enlightenment experience where I realized how I was driven to this thing, I haven't changed the behavior because it hasn't reached a point where I feel like, okay, this is a problem. This is a detrimental thing. But for someone who has crossed that line where they're like fuck like i just i kind of need some help with this what do you think are some of the ways without going out and seeking professional help that they can become their own self-healer and start to work on these compulsions with their own circuitry yeah well the extreme version works but it's too painful for most people including myself which would be a hundred days and the thing is locked in a safe or given to somebody else. A hundred days. A hundred days, because what's happening is once you reach that OCD level, once you're reflexively reaching for your phone and not really enjoying the process of being on there, that means that you're obsessive. You're not obsessing consciously, but you're subconsciously reaching for this thing just to get to baseline. You're just trying to, you're no longer getting the pleasure. You're just trying to, to maintain. 
and this looks exactly like drug-seeking behavior, right? You, you know, unlike nutrition, where we actually do need to ingest nutrients every once in a while in order to keep living, we don't need to use drugs in order to survive, right? It's a personal choice if people decide to do that, but we don't need them in order to survive. That we are engaging with the phone in these compulsive scenarios at a level where it seems essential to survival. And it does seem to be about 100 days before that pleasure pain circuitry adjusts itself so that the phone can be pleasureful again, mm. so that you can enjoy it again. And people have always said, is it 21 days for a habit or is it seven days? Is it 10,000 hours? About 100 days seems to be what it takes for the neural circuits to rearrange themselves. But most people aren't going to do that. So I think it's really about designating periods of time throughout the day. Maybe for me, it's really the, the mid-morning phase is when I can get real work done. So Cal Newport, Deep Work, you know, mm -hmm. to steal his phraseology. I think it's a wonderful book, by the way. Um, he's very, I don't think he's on social media at all. I think social media is great for my purposes and goals. So blocking out 90 minute or two hour periods throughout the day where the phone is off. And in my case, I confess, I have to sometimes put it in the car or toss it up on the roof. <laughs> I, I mean, I just find myself Go, yeah, it, I hear you, man. And then you get the rationalization behavior, like, oh, but wait, maybe my dog sitter this will This is part call. of my business. Right. This is part of what, how right. I reach people. You and know? there's an anxiety. I think everyone needs to know that there's an anxiety associated with not being connected to the phone. And that's normal and healthy, but being able to, that's a great stress inoculation autonomic arousal adjustment practice. If you, you know. I think it's actually called nomophobia. What is that? That's that's the anxiety of not being with your cell phone. Like if you leave your cell phone in the house, they actually came up with the term. Oh, I wrote man. about it in my book. I'm pretty sure it's nomophobia. Can you look that up? Right? Not with them. Not um, with like no mobile phone. You know, phone device phobia. A, a couple yeah. years. Nomophobia. Nomophobia. I need to learn these acronyms. <laughs> There's a. I was going to make a bad joke about some of the things <laughs> happening in um, politics right now, but I'll make it later because uh, anyway. Um, <laughs> About, uh, yeah, but the, um, th it's interesting. A couple of years ago, I gave a talk down at Santa Clara University to some undergraduates and just chatting with them. And we talked about the phone and I said, yeah, you know, the phone is addictive. That's how I was thinking about it then and all this stuff. And afterwards, this kid, really nice kid and is probably in his um, 1920 came up to me and he said, you know, your generation doesn't get it. I said, what? He said, this is this thing that you adopted and that you use and you look at it as this kind of inconvenience. He said, when my phone, he was speaking about himself. He said, when my phone is out of charge, I feel like the life has been depleted out of me. And when it comes back on, I feel a surge of energy in my body and mind. I'm ready again. And I was like, I didn't know whether or not to worry, laugh, cry, like, I I didn't I still don't even know how to interpret that. It's like the, it's like they've become an android. It's the compulsion has led to a complete enmeshment. Complete. Yeah, there's like, no separation. There's no separation yeah. at all. And this is now part of the organism itself. Which yeah, like you said, is that is that good for you? I can't or tell. Is that is that holy shit? This is a nightmare. I, I can't tell. I have a colleague. Um, she's a physician, an MD, Ann Lemke. Um, at Stanford Medicine, she was in the social dilemma and she works on addiction. Mm -hmm. And I asked her, you know, does the phone meet the criteria for addiction? And she just said, absolutely. And not only that, but we're going to look back in 20 years and realize that this was like nicotine cigarettes, that, you know, we, we won't be able to imagine a time in which so many people were using this thing so openly. Now, it, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't have a crystal ball and neither does she, but it's an interesting observation. I think that's kind of where it's at. So for that kid, I'm not going to tell them a hundred days. I would say 
if you can do 90 minutes during the, especially during that, everyone's got that peak portion of their day. You read about this in your book where you can really do something meaningful for your life, not just in that moment, but you can really do some deep thinking or deep writing or whatever it is that you're into, creativity, mathematics, all these things. That 90 minutes at one portion of the day, most days of the week is really what sets your life on a great trajectory. Right. And that would be the time to resist every urge, even if it's absolutely excruciating and learn to master that the same way that you might avoid having the phone on in the middle of your set in a workout. You wouldn't be literally moving the bar or, you know. You, and I've you, done it. I've, I've been on my phone during a workout. It's the worst fucking workout of my life. Right. It's terrible. Well, and, because your context is is in two places. And I'm, and it, and I'm not, I don't get the yeah. relief and the, and the joy of actually moving my body, simplifying my life. But to go back to that 90 minute thing, this is an interesting concept, which, you know, you talk about a bit that of course we know about the circadian rhythms which kind of regulate the entirety of the day the kind of the restfulness and the wakefulness of of the day and it's regulated by hormone releases but there's smaller chunks called the ultradian rhythms That's right? right and why one of the significances of you saying that 90 minute you're basically saying there's going to be at least one but i you know oftentimes one ultradian 90 minute cycle that's super precious and super important. So just like me who knows that that sleep time, if I wake up early at 7.30 with a dry mouth and I need a sip of water, it's precious enough for me to get that you know hour and a half more to nine o'clock that I won't look at my phone. Same thing with that cycle, that ultradian cycle throughout the day, just like sleep cycles are about 90 minutes. It's precious enough that mm -hmm. have that kind of like, regulation internal resistance towards that just to preserve that thing because it's it fucking matters right and if you don't uh, respect it because it really uh, it deserves a certain amount of respect it's baked into our biology these 90 minute cycles no one can escape these 90 minute cycles you go through them during sleep you go through them repetitively during wakefulness most of us have this circadian 24-hour cycle that is matched beautifully to the spin of the earth that is mm -hmm. not a coincidence again i wasn't consulted the design <laughs> phase but it is we are I mean, for all the world, every gene in our body, every cell, every organ is orchestrated around this 24 hour and 90 minute cycle. And so, um, you know, I think we could even be slightly uh, spiritual about this 90 minute cycle, at least one per day. Everyone is endowed with this ability to focus deeply on something that matters to them and to put maximum input and focus and meaning into that experience. You don't always get the result you want out of that 90 minutes, but it's like this gift that we're given. And to this is the way I think about it anyway. I just try not to squander it Yeah. because if you do, there's no penalty right away. Nobody comes along and gives you an electric shock. Um, but if you if you kind of honor that 90 minute cycle, whenever, some people it's in the afternoon, some people it's early in the morning, some people it's mid morning, but that 90 minute cycle is when you can drop into non-distraction. You can cultivate a relationship between yourself, which brings forward like all your history, your family history, your memory, all that. You're not thinking about all that, but it gets funneled into something that feels meaningful. And I don't have any scientific language to place on this, but there's something beautiful that emerges from that. And then I can say with certainty that if you repeat that over time, about five to seven days a week, writing, poetry, music, math, I don't care what it is, just thinking deeply, amazing things will come back to you. It's just the way that the universe works. And so 
that's how I have to set it up in this com- it's almost like a like a holy experience for me. Mm-hmm. It, but what it starts with is completely mundane, normal, and and anxious. It's like, oh, I need to do this thing. I need to do this. I got the email. I do this thing. But I shut down the internet. I take the phone. I do indeed sometimes throw it up on the roof. I I tell my bulldog Costello, I'm going in. And I just, and I truly feel like a nuclear bomb could go off and I'm not going to go off task. So I want to, I want to, and it's hard. It's hard. And I don't always succeed. I don't want to give the impression that I'm like, you know, like the David Goggins of focus. Like (laughs) I'm just, that's not, but there's something that happens when you start at first, it's anxious. It doesn't feel good. You drop into it. You wonder constantly, you're always going to be ejected from this. Am I doing it right? Am I doing it right? I want to go into this. And then you get it. Let me set this up because this is, this is super important. And I I definitely want to go deep here. But first of all, setting this, setting this block of time up. So just take, before we dive into the resistance that comes inevitably Mm -hmm. at the start of this, what do you say for somebody who's like, shit, man, I don't know if mine's in the morning or mine's in the afternoon or mine's in the evening or mine varies throughout the day. Do you think that all of us, if we got still enough, could kind of figure that out? Or is it sometimes we just have to decide when it is? Well, you can control it. You can time it a little bit with caffeine and when you view light and uh, we could go really deep on all that. But the thing to pay attention to is what is the period of your day when you feel most alert without... uh, the fatigue. It's not like a like a grinding alertness, like I'm wired and tired. Mm. Not that. But when do you feel that you have a little bit of underlying agitation? Like I actually, it's weird. I tend to somaticize things a little bit. I always feel this as kind of like a movement in my left arm. Like I feel like I'm almost like got a little bit of a tremor. It mm. means I need to do work. In the same way that sometimes if I don't work out for long enough or run, I'm like, I need to move my body. I start to feel a little bit of anxiety. That's, you know, adrenaline, epinephrine, same thing in the body and mind, activate us. And it's not just for stress, it's for that sweet spot of alert and calm. It's priming us for action. And so that means you're starting one of these 90 minute cycles. Mm. And so the key then is to clear away the clutter, try and create what I call a sparse asteroid field. It's never gonna be open space where it's just you and your and your, and your your activity. That happens once you're in the activity. Right. But you wanna create a very sparse asteroid field. And then you settle into the work and at some point you'll kind of fatigue and that's the end of the 90 minute cycle. So for me, I can, now that you've explained that a little more clearly, there's a, there's a cycle that's available to me after I have, I usually have like a blended drink in the morning, some mm-hmm. hot cacao with some you know, MCT cashew butter, some butter, some different things. And I have that as my breakfast thing and you know, kind of have a little social moment with wife. And, but then there's, that, there's a block right mm-hmm. there in the morning. It's, and before lunch and so there is a really productive block there's usually another one available sometime in the evening sometimes Mm -hmm. actually later Mm -hmm. at night i'll get another one that's Mm -hmm. really valuable but all right beautiful so i have that and now i'm thinking you know and ian who manages my schedule with me along he's in the back there i'm thinking all right i'm gonna come out of this and i'm gonna be like hey man like from 10 30 to 12 clearing the asteroids there's nothing i'm on full dnd and, and that I'm gonna give myself that space. That's right. That's when you get to evolve. This is the way I would think about it. And every animal, whether or not it's a ferret, a cat, a monkey, or a bat, has a period of time each day when it's like, now's the time to forage for food. <laughs> now's the time to, to keep our species going. Now's the time to interact with, you know, they have social times and sleep times, just like us. But every species, but especially humans, you know, we have this time when we can evolve ourselves. And so I think in all the 
personal development and wellness stuff, which I have great respect for, frankly. I mean, what better question than for people to ask themselves, how can I be better than I was yesterday? Well, that's a beauty of our, of our neuroses, if you will, it, to ask ourselves that. But that 90 minute cycle is holy time for that. That's when you get to invest in your own evolution. And to me, I, I've set it up in this almost like um, kind of spiritual way because the day is gonna offer plenty of other stuff, email, text messages, stuff you didn't do, taxes that you had to, it, that's all gonna be there. So you really have to carve space around this and make it almost like a, a, like a religious or spiritual practice. Mm -hmm. And when one does that regularly, what starts to happen is it just starts to feel so good because you can know what to expect there. You go, oh, there's the interference, the resistance that you know Stephen Pressfield talks about, yeah. that um, there's the, the frustration. And, and that brings up something I just feel obligated to say, which is neuroplasticity, the brain learning and getting better and changing errors and frustration, that's how the brain knows this is something to pay attention to and make changes around. If it, we've centered so much around the concept of flow that we're gonna just drop into this amazing state and everything's gonna work. The errors and frustration are, are our brain saying, wait, what's not working here so that it can work the next time? And so you can expect friction and you can also expect periods it's of flow. It's like having to hack your way through some dense brush to get to the waterfall right. that you're gonna go swiving. And maybe you're gonna to get to flow. That's the goal of this Ultradian cycle is you're gonna get yep. into that flow state of writing. And you do a great job breaking this down. So now I wanna get into this resistance point because even if you mark this time out, even as I do it, and I'm gonna do this tomorrow morning, you know, great. and it's gonna be my 10.30 to noon block. Well, I might have a podcast, but we'll start it as soon as I can yeah, start it. Sure. So I'm gonna block that out even me who's good you know written a book and accomplished a lot and has worked through a lot of this it still comes at the start when i go to start open i open that file and it says master your mind master your life and i'm like shit and i start to like i start to get antsy and i start to fidget around and i start to think about excuses of why i shouldn't do it but if i just sit through it and endure it something else happens so Talk to us about what Stephen Pressfield would call this capital R resistance. What's happening in the brain? What's happening in the body? And what happens when you push through and actually turn that cycle over? Yeah, so that um, kind of rumination or the feeling like I don't know where to start, which is kind of the entry point for so you know half the what used to be bookshelves in the Amazon book department of like how to chunk and how to break things down and the Pomodoro technique, all of that is trying to manage and cope with the fact that what you're experiencing in that moment is a release of norepinephrine from, it's actually really cool. The name of the neurons in the brainstem, it's a beautiful name, is locus ceruleus. It's actually, the neurons actually look blue. Sounds like a Roman general. Yeah, I think it means something. I'm gonna get this wrong, but maybe someone will look it up and then correct uh, me in the comments someplace. It's, uh, I think it means blue. And the neurons are actually have this dark blue-like thing, I think because of the chemical they make. And it, it's this wake up signal for the brain. It's like, this is important, here we go. Like you open that file and that file, mm -hmm. goes, it's the symbolism we talked about earlier. That symbol is, this is me, this is my work. This is like, oh my goodness, this is a lot. And I'm just here in my living room and my cats. And there's this huge gap in time and space between where you're at and where you wanna be. And the brain recognizes that. It's like if, um, foraging for food and there's this huge jungle and you're like, I, I think there's a lake on the other side with, you know, food and mates and all this, like, oh my gosh, how do you do it? Well, the key is just like with the junk, you just start hacking. The reason is you wanna take, not hacking biohacking, hacking like I meant hacking down plants yeah. or gently moving them aside, whatever is required. <laughs> but, the, but the idea is that that 
release of norepinephrine and adrenaline in the brain and body, it's priming you for action. And if you don't take some action, some physical action, it starts to feel overwhelming and confusing. And so we, you know, we evolved to do intellectual things and have intellectual pursuits, but this system was designed for physical pursuits to just start moving away brush and just start going, oh no, that's a, that's a wall. Uh -huh. That's a bunch of rocks. Okay. This way. Oh wait, there's an opening that that's actually when dopamine is released. So I'll explain dopamine weaves into this in a healthy way. When you just start some action, so maybe you write out, um, maybe you're having a really foggy morning in, in your head and you just say, you know, what? I'm just going to write my name 20 times like Bart Simpson, right? You know, repeat, 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 repeat. That action actually lowers the kind of act, the threshold and this, it bridges this gap with epinephrine. It allows you to get closer kind of to your It channels that restlessness. It's taking it someplace. Yeah. Exactly. It's interesting. I had an IG live with Stephen Pressfield uh, yesterday or the day before. And he was talking about a lot of the writers that he know, and he actually adopts this as well. He'll just force himself to start writing. And he knows that he's going to, you know, delete most of this almost 90% of the time. But so the trick that a writer will have, they'll leave themselves. And he's, I think he said Hemingway did this. He would stop in the middle of a sentence. So, cause he knew that like, oh, if I, oh, I know how to finish that sentence. So he leaves himself a clear place, mm -hmm. like a clear landing spot. Oh, I see. And also stop where he was excited. So you don't run yourself out of ideas oh, and nice. run yourself out of dialogue. It's like, and then he said to the man, don't you stop. Beautiful. And then in the next, in the next morning, he goes right in there, starting his new cycle, knowing that he's going to face mm -hmm. resistance. And he goes, ever do that to me again. And all of a sudden he started and he's back in his thing. So I think you identified, I think you actually just solved a, um, a long lasting mystery about a resistance. I, I really, I mean that in all sincerity. It's like laying down the machete right at the patch of grass or, or um, jungle plants that you know you need to cut down. Mm -hmm. What that allows you to do, the way that you, I, I'm rephrasing what you said, but sure. I, wa I wanna give, I'm an academic and we give attribution and I wanna give credit <laughs> where credit's due. Aubrey laid, I'd never thought about this. By doing that, the story had always been that they leave this thing unanswered so that during the night, their subconscious would work it out. This very beautiful romantic notion. Maybe, okay, fine. But the way you describe it actually makes much more sense in terms of how the neuroscience works, which it means that at the beginning of that next day cycle, let's say 90 minute cycle, you get there, the agitation you feel has a place mm -hmm. that you know is adaptive. You're gonna finish this thing. It's like, I, I'm almost to the end of mowing the lawn, but I'm gonna mm -hmm. leave this patch of grass. So the next morning, instead of feeling the agitation of what to do next, because you mowed the whole lawn and you now have to you know, plant tomatoes, you are saying, I'm just gonna finish chopping down the hedges. I'm gonna mow the lawn. I'm yeah. going to finish the sentence. And the completion of a motor task, of some physical task, takes advantage of this system where as we release that norepinephrine, and we complete something, we get a little pulse of dopamine. And most people don't know this. There's no reason why they should. But dopamine, which is made from L-dopa, L-tyrosine from food, becomes L-dopa eventually, becomes dopamine. But dopamine is actually what epinephrine and adrenaline are made from. When you make dopamine, you can go longer, harder, and with more intensity. I guess that's harder. Longer and with more intensity and more focus than you could if you didn't get that dopamine hit. So starting work from the standpoint of a brick wall is very hard. Mm. 
So what you're saying is, and I love this because it means leave it a little bit unfinished so the next day you can channel that agitation into something meaningful, pick up the dopamine hit, and then churn into the next day's, that day's work. And so I, I actually, I'm, I want to thank you because um, <laughs> a lot of what I do these days is try and take what we know for sure about, the, about biology and apply it to real world scenarios. And it doesn't always work. And there has always been this thing about leaving this thing unfinished, the, the ellipse, the dot, dot, dot. But I think in a, in a really practical way, the way you describe it makes really good sense. And I'm going to start to adopt that practice. Uh, me too. And yeah. this is, these are things that from listening to you, and then that's why I kind of steered it that way with Stephen Pressfield. So really you also deserve credit for this. And then Stephen, of course, deserves credit for his exploration of resistance and Hemingway for doing what he did, or if that's where it came from, I recall that being it. But ultimately like this idea is really, it's really revolutionary for someone. And it doesn't, you don't have to be a writer. If you're just going to, maybe you're making a course or you're making an online thing or you're doing your piece of art and it's a painting and you know exactly there's this one flower that you know how to finish and you know where to finish it. In some ways, you're almost delaying the gratification though because there is probably some dopamine modulated satisfaction of finishing the easy thing and saying, throwing your hands and saying, ha, ah, done for the day. Well, these are the list makers. Right. You know, I think in, I read those books growing up. I love children's books because they, and I love poetry because they distill like all these elements of the brain and, and subconscious and neural circuits into just such simple stories and terms. And they carry so much. And I do think adult stories are great too, but there was this uh, kid's book, Frog and Toad are Friends. And I'll never forget that as a kid, there's one where he says, you know, first thing of the day, make list. And then like crosses it out. <laughs> and it's like, it's so brilliant. Cause it's like, they like frog or toad. I don't remember which one it was. Um, I think they were a couple or something in the book. Anyway, they didn't tell the kids that, <laughs> but frog or toad crosses that off. And it's that process of leaning into something yeah. and feeling like you can pick up that first carrot along the way. And that carrot, as I'm referring to it, is indeed the dopamine. It's also really important, I think in any discussion around dopamine, if that if we create external rewards for what we're doing that are, it can actually get in our way. So for instance, if we're too, fo like being focused on the end goal is great, but if we're only driven because of the money we're gonna make or the praise we're going to get, it actually can inhibit the process. And the way it works has been described really nicely by a friend of mine who's a cardiologist at UCSF. And he says, you know, so many people will um, come to him and say, I'm gonna write a book. And you're like, oh great, you should write a book on whatever, the gut brain axis or neuroscience. And then they never do. And what he eventually came to realize is he would give them so much positive feedback, like, oh yeah, you'd write a great book. It's gonna be terrific that, <laughs> that they got all the dopamine they needed and it just stops right there. It was yeah. like the reward was in the knowing they could uh -huh. and they can't get past that. And when you talk to a lot of accomplished writers or people who've already had one great success, they have a hard time with the next thing because they're not really into it far enough yet they just had this big dopamine hit from the previous thing. And they're like, can I ever exceed that previous performance? And it's a neurological thing. And good writers, good creatives, they just know to get right back where they started on the first one, yeah. which is you don't, it, it's kind of cool because the, the uh, nature and, uh, and the universe don't really allow us any um, you know jump to level nine shortcuts. It, it, it changes as we go, but, um, there's always some friction. And I think the friction is always internal. It's rarely that we can't move our hand, we can't type on the keyboard, that we can't walk to the desk. It's all in our heads. And that, that boggles my mind 
that we create so many barriers, but those barriers are chemical. And so when we learn to kind of dance with them a little bit better, the way we're talking about it, it really can make the process a lot and easier. And what's beautiful is, is that you can talk to someone, and it reminds me of another aspect of the conversation I had with Pressfield. You talk to someone like Pressfield, who is a consummate professional writer, and you talk to someone like Goggins, who has mastered the ability to push through his own physical discomfort and certain fear responses and and they don't know why and how they're doing it they don't know why it works that's where someone like you comes in and figures out all of these things but what you're just describing is probably why steven pressfield says he's always 30 percent done with the next book before he finishes the book that he's on he never wants to leave a gap because he says if he goes and finishes one entirely and has to start a new one from scratch after that one is finished He's afraid he may never start it again. Right. And, he, and he very well may never start another one again yeah. were he to do that. He knows himself well. I mean, the, mm -hmm. there's so many great quotes out there now and they're so accessible, but you know, if there's one that I think is, you know, at least among the very best ones is the Oracle, right? Know thyself. It's so simple. And it's like, if you, if you know your own internal weaknesses, you can work with them. And I think he's clearly... Um, you know, he he does really deserve the the kind of praise and credit for having identified this thing, giving it a name, writing an entire book about yeah. the challenge of writing books from a standpoint that people could really relate to. Uh, I've never met him, but uh, I'm very impressed guy. by what yeah, by should, what he's done. You should yeah. make that happen for sure. There's a lot of other areas that I want to get in that are really interesting, but I want to start talking about how. So we've talked about a lot of how the nervous system interacts with the brain when you start exploring the idea of consciousness particularly consciousness and we actually started talking about this before the podcast consciousness as it seems to be in my own experience with exploring my own consciousness it seems to be inexorably connected to a collective consciousness and how that interacts with the individual self interacts with the brain interacts with the physiology but cannot be fully separated from something that's also infinite and in many ways universal or at least if not universal collectivized to a much larger degree when you start to look at consciousness you know for you personally what what kind of comes up when you start to try to explain it or try to fathom it in one of your deep thinking cycles yeah well i um these are the big important questions and i i'm glad and i appreciate that you said personally because i i think the first thing that leaps to mind is you know the Discussion around consciousness in the field of neuroscience has been a, a bit of a of a trap. Um, there have been in a couple of uh, very well known scientists who are kind of um, heading into the end of their careers, um, retirement, uh, where it you know they said a lot of stuff that sounded great, but I'm not sure that it really solved anything. There are theories about specific brain centers that control consciousness. One in particular is called the claustrum. I don't think that's ever really been tested. There are a lot of people who will tell you a lot of things about consciousness. And I just want to be clear that I can only draw from my uh, memory bank of what I know about neuroscience and my own experience, right? The science of consciousness is re remarkably weak. I mean, there's mm -hmm. no experiment that says this is consciousness. In fact, it's just hard to look at in a reductionist way. So that's good though, I think, because for now, because we can put that aside as, you know, what what's the lab experiment that would reveal consciousness? Because there isn't one, at least not yet. And we can be philosophers. And, and we can be philosophers a bit. Um, and so, so with all that said, you know, our brain in particular, our neocortex, this 
piece on the outside that um, contains a map of our experience. It's a map of everything that happened to you from probably when you were in the womb until just a moment ago. It's a map of the external world merged with your internal world. So you have some sense of who you are, what your name is, the shape of your body, where your limbs are, um, how quick you're breathing or how slowly you're breathing. But that's all your, what we call interoception. It's our experience of our inner world. And then there's everything we see right now. And those are perceptions, sensations and perceptions. So light and sound and all that stuff impinging on us. Okay, fine. But then we have these things like thoughts and memories. And those are really interesting because thoughts and memories include not just what we're experiencing right now, but things from the past and things from the future. So our experience of life is actually split into three different regimes, past, present, and future, right? There may be other dimensions, but they're just hard to conceive of, sure. and I'm not smart enough to be able to articulate <laughs> them or even really conceive of them, um, at least not in this state. So um, not to say a Texas, you know, the, but in, in this state of mind. Yep. Um, so I think we're all on the same page. But the but space and time is what the brain tries to use and make sense of. So as I'm saying this, I'm drawing from previous experience and I'm drawing from the present and maybe even the future, my ideas of what might happen next. But I think the really important to think of, thing to think about when it comes to a discussion about consciousness is that my map of understanding is not just mine and what I do and what I think, because that map was created from external sources. So other people's maps of experience, in particular primary caregivers early on, whoever that happened to be, and social interactions early on. I carry a map of some of the kids that I grew up with skateboarding when I was like 14, 15. In fact, it goes right back to this symbolism. I'll just think of one. There, there's a guy, He, I think he runs the team for Adidas skateboarding. Like the nicest guy I ever met when I was a young kid, just kind of feral, was this kid Carl Watson. He's a great skateboarder. Carl's amazing. Anyone from the skateboarding community knows this, this kid. He's just got the, I met him for the first time. He had an amazing spirit and energy, great skateboarder, super guy, dad, all this stuff nowadays. So I internalized some concept of him. He's safe. He's my friend. I trust him. I like him. I carry that with me, even though I didn't think about him again until about a year ago when I ran into him in Oakland, and now I see him on social media. So I could say, well, my map of experience and consciousness and this one individual that I'm selecting, Carl, they are, that's my world, my experience. But I internalized some concept and symbol of him. So like we're connected through neurology, even though I have no idea what he's doing right now. Mm -hmm. We're connected because I carry a concept and a, and a way of being that includes him, right? And I'll, and the the like jerk kid that you know like said something to me that I'm st like still ruminating about forty years later, right? That that's really my issue, right? So we carry everything with us, and you know I think the deep work for all of us is to tr be in order to be sane, healthy individuals. We have to be able to separate out past, present, and future. If we can't do that, it's important to merge them, but we have to know if we are pulling from the past, pulling from the future, or fully present, or some combination, because it's often a combination. But we also, I think, have to acknowledge that the way that we see things, the way that we, we view the world and what we believe is not just our own experience, that it's that, and we're impacting other people's experience. And so if this is sounding really abstract, what I mean is that we are walking around in these casings of bodies and brains in this hard thing we call a skull, but those things are modulating each other. And people love to ask me that like the 
kind of new agey questions about like energy and spirituality. And I often don't go there, but this is something that we know. My maps of experience are partially what I wanted them to be and decide, but other people embedded things in me. And I think the work of being a human being is in part, because you can't spend all your time on this, but is in part sorting out what's mine and I really love and adore and hate and how much of it is really self-created, how much of it is because I'm not doing the deep work of flying through space and time and sorting it out. And, or in some cases, people are spending too much time doing that and they're not getting back into the world and affecting the other members of their species. So, you know, it's hard work being a human because you got to do the 90 minute cycles, the breathing, the sleep, the mm -hmm. nutrition, the exercise and the deep work. And so I acknowledge that it's, it's a, it's a beast of a thing to try and tackle it all, but that's a very long worded way of saying, you know, our brain and our maps of the world were created by us, but they got tremendous input from other people, which means that we are creating inputs for other people. Right. So we're all far more connected. And I, I've looked at some studies recently and there's been some animal studies and i think there's some human corollaries where they actually show an epigenetic transmission of a fear response based on a certain trigger and are you familiar with these yeah, studies? so this is wild so for the longest time this was in the literature and psychology textbook they would take these little nematode worms this was the original experiment mm -hmm. and they would um you can cut a nematode worm in half please don't do that kids it's like unnecessary roughness but they did this they regrow right? They'll, they'll regrow. So they would do this thing where they would um, take these nematode worms, put them into a, a tank of water, and then they'd shock them. And then they would like cut them in half, put them in a new tank, and then look at the offspring of either half. Okay. And then why would you do that? Then they would see that the offspring would react to the shock or, or would react. They would do it kind of Pavlovian thing. Sorry. The description I just did was terrible. They t you take a worm, you put it in a tank, you would flash a light and then shock them. Mm. And then next time you just flash the light and the, and the animal would contract as if it was going to get shocked. Classic Pavlovian right. learning. Then they looked at the offspring that never were shocked and they played the light and the, the worms would contract. And so it was like, wow, it's transgenerational passage of this experience. But there were all sorts of problems of like how you could um, sort that out. So they did experiments where they would cut the worms in half, same worm, give them two different conditions. So same worm grown to two different worms, two different conditions. One, they get the shock, so one, they don't. Gen so same, same gene, genetics. same everything. Yeah, so sorry. So it has to be That's right. That's modulus. right. And I described it very poorly before, so forgive me. Um, and uh, this other experiment showed that indeed it's it's passage of the memory to the to the baby worms, you know. Now, then everyone said it was complete garbage. They came along, someone said, look, the experiments weren't done properly. It's not right. But recently there's a lab in Israel and the guy's name escapes me and a couple in the US that have shown that this transgenerational passage of memory does and can occur, which is seems kind of eerie, but it could be epigenetic. It could be modifications of the genomes of the offspring. So they're hyper-reactive yeah. to external stimuli. Um, but there's some things about the experiments that actually make it seem as if it can't be just that, that there might be some passage of a memory. But of course, mother and child are past the mother and the child are in this really interesting interplay of hormonal communication across the placental barrier. And there's all sorts of cool reproductive biology. We could talk about some other time, like if two twins are in separate sacs, is it, or the same monochorionic, dichorionic, how they're communicating. Um, I mean, it's, it, there is immense possibility for communication through chemical signals across generations. There's no question about that. Yeah.
And then the farther you get, though, from the mother, you know, if you continue down this line and you still have the flash of light creating the response as if they're about to get shocked, that's where it gets really interesting. And then it gets interesting to think about a human. Now, someone like Rupert Sheldrake has no problem with this. He says, of course, you upload it to the morphic resonance field, which is the collective consciousness of the organism. And then the organism through remembers that. But why only that particular organism if it's the morph? It gets kind of confusing, and there's a lot of different theories, whether it's epigenetic, whether it's chemical, or whether it's more spiritual consciousness, something that, as a psychedelic explorer, I absolutely have no personal doubt exists because I've interacted with the spiritual consciousnesses of many different types of organisms and different beings on a pure spiritual level. So I believe that personally. Obviously, I can't prove any of it. This is all you know, N of one and, and my own experiences of it. But if we think about that, at the very least, there's a likelihood that things are being transmitted down to us from however long through our history, our genetic history, we have this kind of consciousness that's already shaped in a certain way based upon life experiences of our ancestors that we've all seen. So when if we've never seen a snake, never heard about a snake, never read about a snake, have no idea, but we see something slithering, we're gonna run, we're gonna step back and we're gonna have that natural response. Carl Jung talks about these kind of archetypes that create this visceral response. If someone sees a an archetypal image of even a dragon, which is you know something we talked about before the show, they'll feel kind of what that is based upon what seems like there's these patterns that exist in the consciousness, even beyond what the specific conditioning of our own lives. Right have contributed well at a very low level like my lab studies a visual threat um and you know small objects getting darker and bigger evokes a, a an alertness response i don't suggest you do this to any babies but a, a newborn baby you can lean into and they, their eyes will, will widen their pupils will dilate it's an arousal response something's getting closer to you it's hardwired mm. it doesn't require any learning but in terms of transgenerational passage you could imagine that a culture of people that suffered quite a bit, that there would be a, a kind of underlying level of vigilance that could be passed on in the form of like, we talk about um, pre-pulse uh, pre -pulse startle inhibition. It's a very simple, you know, those people you can walk up behind them and they're, and they're typing and you go, hey, and they, and they go, yeah, what's up? And then there are other people you walk by and you go, hey, and they go, what's going on? That's that's hardwired, uh -huh. right? They're, they're, they're anxious or they're not. They're like, whoa. And a lot of that is, has a lot to do with upbringing, but a lot of it also has to do with the thresholds in those circuits for movement, how much adrenaline they release in a, you know, in a pulse. And some of that will be learned and some of it, and it can be modified through be, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy and other tools, but some of it could be transgenerational, right? You know, there are people on the planet right now whose ancestors have been put through a hell of a lot and they're and, you know, and they carry that and you see it in their faces, right? I mean, I think you almost have to be a robot to not see that, that like people, there are a lot of people that are stricken. They're not snowflakes. They're those two, but they're, they're stricken, right? And they're, and what they carry isn't just their immediate experience. Like you can see it. That's why I think like great photographers, great artists, they can capture these kind of like these things about the, the weight of things, right? And so- it gets, uh, you know, and it's sad, like, as I'm saying it, like it, it, there's also the great joy that, you know, has, is transgenerational. So to balance out the, the dark and the light. But I think that there's a way in which like we're all impacting each other all the time. 
and whether or not it's embedded at the level of genomes or nervous systems isn't clear, but we know one thing, genes don't control behavior. Nervous systems control behavior. Mm -hmm. Genes don't program behavior. They program nervous systems and hormones and bodies and stuff so that behavior can happen. The nervous system, the perhaps the greatest gift that we got as human beings is that we know that our nervous system is modifiable and we know that we can direct those modifications. And I rarely get into conversations about like higher spirituality because I just don't, frankly, I just don't know that much about it. Sure. But if ever there was like a, a calling, it's sort of like humans have this need and desire to try and sort through their own experience and try and make it better for themselves and hopefully for others too. And so there does seem to be something embedded in the way that we're built that makes us want to understand ourselves, understand other people. And I don't know, I, every, I'm, I figure I'm about that's halfway. A, yeah, that's the spiritual impulse. It, that's know, right. Where is, does that come from? And you can say that could come from our endless search for meaning, our, our ways to make a story that makes sure. sense because of the mystery that exists. Oh, why is the world floating? Well, there's a turtle that has the world on its back. Well, what's under the turtle? Turtles all the way down. You know, like, you know, like the, shit. Perhaps one of the best quotes ever, <laughs> yeah. ever, ever. Still, nobody knows exactly what it means, but that's what makes it so genius. Yeah. Um, so that, it could be that, or it could be that there's a knowing. There's a knowing of that there is that something more because we are connected to it, and there's no way to prove it either way. But there is there is a deep spiritual impulse. We can't ignore it. It's created a lot of religions, which have been manipulations of that impulse. Often, you know, often, yeah, often, not always. You know, it's it's interesting. The um, the human mind has this incredible capacity to adjust its space time referencing scheme, and I don't say that to sound like a theoretical physicist. What I mean is that we our gaze can dilate to like a soda straw view of the world. And we can, I mean, you and I could spend a couple hours talking about the patterns on this table if we wanted to and the, the, what it's made of. Yeah, read Aldous you know, Huxley on his mescaline journeys. That's what he's talking right, about. Right, he gives meaning, it, sure. He looks at like the patterns of his, of the wood grain on his wall and he's just describing it endlessly. And yeah, he's linking it to something. Or we can, yeah. or we can imagine that we're just in this room in Texas on the planet, in the universe, you know, so we can scale our space and time. We can think about generations past, or we can think about just the people we interacted with today. So the human brain is really good at contracting and dilating its, its focus, visual focus, but also conceptual focus. And at some point, I think that practice of, dil of contracting and dilating leads us to the place to realize, whoa, we could get stuck at any of these stations if we stayed there. You know, we stayed there long enough. We can find meaning anywhere mm -hmm. at the level of, of a grain of sand, at the level of the the entire galaxy, and so that starts to feel kind of overwhelming. And so then there's this other impulse I think kicks in, like what are the larger organizational forces, the things like collective consciousness, the things like religion. Where are the, um, you know, what who's the real? Is there a real observer of observers? And it. it it can start to feel overwhelming. It can wrap back on itself. People have lost their minds trying to solve this stuff for themselves and for others. People have claimed to have solved it, which that's, I've never read a concise explanation that made sense to me. I think what it is, is that it's this journey up and from highly contracted to dilated. It's a, it's a process. It's not like there's one station where it all makes sense. Mm -hmm. It's you have to be able to visit all those stations. And I think that, and and that's I think that's an important thing to say is like if you really, I think sometimes it will have somebody with a very myopic gaze who will try to explain something like a five meo bufo experience, you know, but have never having done it. What's bufo? I so that's a bufo alvaris. It's a it's a toad that produces five meo DMT excreted from its 
I think I read about this in the Times. Is this the this is not they call it the God molecule. This is not combo. No, combo is different. That's okay. like a very purgative. It's more of a poison, and it doesn't really create a hallucinogenic effect. Okay. It can be, you know, they treat it as medicine. Vastly different, though. One gives you reliably the most potent psychedelic experience on the planet. Period. And they call it the God molecule for a reason because it creates this. Typically, every experience is unique, but it creates a, a state of radical unicity, oneness, a felt sensation of being as God, with God, inseparable from God, no subject-object separation. It's not me having an experience, which even in the most intense ayahuasca, this is me purging, me seeing this, me to, in the 5-MeO experience, there's just I. And I is everything and mm. everything that ever was and everything that ever would be and it could be and mm. will be all at the same time. And you feel it. And I, I mean, I have that experience. I don't see anything. I don't hear anything. It is just because it's everything. There's no differentiation. To see something, there has to be a distinction, a separation in the pattern. To hear something, there has to go from silence to noise. There has to be no separation. It's just unicity. So that experience you can't you can't talk about that experience mm -hmm. and then say oh well we measured the brain and we know and so i understand that experience this is what this is mm -hmm. in some ways i think this is where i this is i love the work that's being done by all the amazing scientists of the world however commenting on this specifically i think there's some things that have to be felt and studied you yeah. can't do one or the other. You can't just do 5-MeO and say, I know everything about the brain. and I know. Or you can't just be a scientist never having done it and say, I know everything either. Sure, absolutely. And even if you do both, you still don't know everything. Yeah. Oh, I totally agree. I mean, I think that um, from time to time, uh, people from the uh, yoga community have said, hey, you know, these breathing things you talk about or the circadian rhythm, I'm big on, you know, light and circadian rhythms. That's been known about for thousands of years. And my response is always the same which is yes, and it's been shrouded in language that's prevented it from getting to a lot of people who could really benefit from it. And the stuff of scientific papers has been shrouded in language that has prevented it yeah. from getting to a lot of people who could benefit from it, which is why I'm here. And so which is I a very important role. You're yeah. the shakaruna, as they call it in the medicine, like you're the bridge. I mean, that's, I think in this short life, my goal is to take a neuroscience lens and we can cast any number of different things through it consciousness, relationship, breathing, stress, learning. We can put anything through that lens, but I acknowledge it's just one lens. And, you know, there are other lenses I look through, but that I'm, I don't feel qualified to, you know, I can comment on, but I don't have any kind of rigor or organized language to put around it. And I will say that, um, you know, religion isn't something that I, I know much about, but our director of the National Institutes of Health, Francis Collins, our current director of the National Institutes of Health, has written, um, not extensively, but he's put some articles out there. I mean, he himself is a religious person, which I think most people don't know that. They think, oh, he's a physician and a scientist and scientists are all like divorced from religion and spirituality. He's quite religious. And he's been open about that and why he made that decision. And he arrived at it fairly late in life. It's a fascinating read if anyone wants sure. to check it out. Um, and there are other scientists who don't seem to believe in anything that they can't observe down the microscope. And there are colleagues of mine who have strong religious leanings and um, a few with spiritual leanings. I think the world of, it's such, we're in such an interesting time. I mean, one of my favorite things in, in life is that growing up, I was fortunate enough to 
I was not one of them, but I was able to see some kids get really good at skateboarding or music and then, and see the evolution of something. Mm -hmm. And I, even though I left that community pretty early, I always carried that with me because I realized what's happening now, that's the evolution that we're going to look back on in 10 years. So be aware of how you fit into that process. I mean, you're doing this, you're teaching and guiding and, you know, 20 years from now, we're going to look back and we're like, that was part of this evolution. And I think the, one of the really important and exciting discussions that's happening right now is all this stuff around psychiatric health and psychedelic medicine. Mm -hmm. I look to a couple pioneers in particular, and I also want to acknowledge that this, this whole thing was attempted in the sixties and went unfortunately badly wrong. Mm -hmm. We got some great quotes, some great stories, but we also ended up with a, like a lot of people who lost their minds, others who had great insights that were marginalized mm -hmm. by academic communities, by for all sorts of reasons. So this time around, it's happening differently. You've got the group at Johns Hopkins, Matthew Johnson, and a few others that are doing rigorous science of psychedelic medicine. I'm not involved in this work, but it's like it's happening again 40, 50 years later, but it's now happening inside of universities where not only are they not at risk for losing their jobs, they've actually been given jobs specifically for this. Because yep. people forget that like Huxley, Ram Dass, and all that, they lost their jobs, yeah. right? I mean, Ken Kesey, those guys, there was the VA hospital in, in Menlo Park, I think. These people were not um, kept in the business. And it's an interesting history in its own right. So Matt is there doing his thing, which I really admire. You've had funding from external sources, private sources mainly. Now the National Institutes of Health is paying attention to this. There are colleagues of mine who are working on MDMA. Uh, my lab isn't working on these things. So we are at the, the front edge of what could be the, the, this bridge between discussions about mental health first. First, it'll be about mental health. And then it will be, well, why do these things work the way they do? And let's just say I know enough about how they work to understand that they clearly alter the perception of space and time in some way that, at least in the clinical studies done correctly and safely, allow people to repackage their experience in a way that doesn't carry such a burden. And I do want to be clear because I have to be careful about this. I'm not a proponent, nor am I saying these is bad. I'm saying it's interesting this is happening in laboratories now and in clinics around the world now. And it's, it's, one of the, it's not the only, but it's one of the kind of next generation of of, psychi of treatments for psychiatric illness. That's clear. And it's so exciting because I think we've adopted this kind of broken brain hypothesis, whereas if something is going wrong with your consciousness, don't worry about your nervous system. We got a chemical for you. We'll insert this chemical. You take it forever and we'll fix you right up. Like you have a machine that has a screw loose and you screw it in. Right. And it's not working out. You know, it's like people, it can help people in the short term. And I know sure. it can be beneficial. I'm not saying for everybody to get off their meds and whatever. They have their place and they have their purpose. They've, saved, they've saved lives and they've taken lives. No doubt, yeah. no doubt. But what we're seeing with these other psychedelic medicine treatments is you in the MDMA-assisted psychotherapy, it's three sessions, three encounters with MDMA, and people are healing their post-traumatic stress, two out of every three in the phase twos at least. And- it's getting better over time. They're not having to continually take MDMA. So there's some transcendent experience that's creating that. Same with the psilocybin, you know, mediated experiences that are being studied. It's not like a continual microdose of psilocybin altering a brain chemistry, right. adding a chemical. It's the transcendent experience itself that's rewiring 
or in whatever way, maybe rewiring is the wrong word. You would know no, if that's I, the I right think word. It is, I think it is opening plasticity. Mm-hmm. I mean, if we look at MDMA just from a strictly chemical standpoint, like what is it doing? You take MDMA, what is the chemical effect? The effect is a very unusual one, which is high levels of dopamine. We know that based on its chemical structure, high levels of dopamine, a lot of arousal, alertness, but also high levels of serotonin simultaneously. And that's a very unusual state. I'm not saying people couldn't achieve that state through other means, but that's very unusual. Most um, compounds that are being tested right now are more on the purely serotonergic or mostly serotonergic or mostly dopaminergic. So it somehow creates this opportunity for plasticity. I think a lot of people don't realize this, that the plasticity isn't just while they're under feeling the effects of it, that it has a long tail that the plasticity is a process that opens and it's not like it shuts down the moment that the drug is cleared from the system. That plasticity is a process in which neurons are searching for new connections and they are more or less allowed to make new associations. Mm -hmm. Now that makes it a very vulnerable time too where a certain set of contingencies have to take place. I mean, the wiring could go good or could go bad. It sounds like from these early stage clinical trials or now late stage clinical trials, it's going well for the treatment of uh, PTSD, yep. which is remarkable and, and vital. And But it means that the experience that someone has when they walk out of the clinic and the next day and the next day is gonna be very important also. Yeah. And- um, uh, Integration, that's inter- the classic that's right. wisdom. And I yeah. think that um, a, a friend of mine who's an MD who knows a lot about this space, he always says, you know, better living through chemistry still requires better living, you know? <laughs> and and yeah. for a lot of people, they're so back on their heels that they can't engage in the better living part. That was always the goal of antidepressants. Yeah. Let people be normal enough, again, feel healthy enough that they can start to engage normally and then disengage from the drug. But sometimes that works out and sometimes it doesn't. And it is incredible what's happening. I mean, I guess I, I'm not really saying anything of substance except that I'm watching this space very carefully. And it does seem like, unlike in the 60s, the late 60s and 70s, this time around it's being done at big, highly reputable institutions, in addition to the various you know homegrown clinics out there. And it does seem like things are changing. I mean, it, I think this is the, I think we're at the precipice of a revolution at a time when we really need it, a, a revolution of understanding our physiology, our, our biology, our men, you know, our mental health, our psychology, all of these different things, as we start to interact with these compounds, these mystical compounds, and then bridging science and spirituality, bridging, having new tools that all of these psychiatrists and psychologists who've been doing the best with the tools they have trying to make you know sculptures fine sculptures with heavy chisels and heavy hammers like fuck i'm trying my hardest you know and they're getting access to these tools which are like laser etchers and they're able to get in and even what you're talking about with the high levels of neuroplasticity that's being created they're actually that's why it's it's mediated psychotherapy it's psilocybin mediated psychotherapy it's psilocybin mediated mdma mediated psychotherapy you're getting skilled technicians at the point where there's the highest degree of neuroplasticity able to move through there and actually start to help people repattern these things and the amount of healing that we're on the precipice of the amount of understanding the way that we're able to kind of bring all these things together it's like all the monsters emerged from the woods and we were really getting our ass kicked, even though we solved the other monsters. But now I think solutions to these monsters are starting to come online to bring it all the way back around to what we were talking about earlier. 
and I really see this, you know, psychedelic medicine revolution and also the, you know, kind of the religious use, the spiritual use of these medicines as the peyote way church gains more acceptance. And there's other traditional ways that I don't Mm -hmm. think it has to only be medicinal. I lean more towards the traditional ways rather than the medicinal, although the medicinal has been incredibly valuable when I've had the ability to kind of adopt that framework as well. But it's, it's really fucking exciting to see so many of these things starting to blend. It is. I mean, I think that, um, you know, three years ago, four years ago, I would have, I wouldn't have thought that this was going to be the discussion that people are having now. And it's clear there's a huge need. I mean, the the work on PTSD alone is incredible. There's groups up at UC Davis that are developing um, non-hallucinogenic variations on some of, some of these for certain populations that are not going to want that or have that, that tap into kind of the thought processes, but without visual hallucination. So there's like serious science being done. I'm sure that from the standpoint of traditional um, spirituality and and plant medicine, there are people who are concerned, wait, it's going to be just so stripped down of its of its essence. I think the way these things tend to go is that, it, I don't have a crystal ball, but the fact that the discussion is happening and that more people are going to be able to access resources of various kinds is really the key thing. I think we yeah, have to hold that end. greater go. It's a both-end It's a both-end, yeah, I love that. I, I have heard recently, and I don't know anything about this, but I've been seeing some rumblings about concerns about patents. Like if pharmaceutical companies come in and patent um, psilocybin or patent MDMA, then it's gonna create a, a mess. I, I need to learn more about that. I guess I'm mentioning it because I think it's, if, if I'm he- hearing about this- Yeah, from the- I mean, people are worried about patenting them for use cases, but use cases in specific things. And I think that's the only thing that you can actually patent. You can't patent a compound that's already existed. Right. It's already passed its expiry. Of, right. uh, so, but I think people are trying, it is a bit of a land grab to say, okay, all right, well, if you're going to use psilocybin for smoking cessation, which has some very good early clinical evidence that it's helpful for, we can try and apply for a patent for the utilization of this for this specific disease condition. And, you know, it's just the way the world is, you know, it's just like, this is the landscape. This is what our patent law looks like. And I get it. I think like, I understand both sides of that. And I, I obviously would never want to work with a company that was trying to do that and trying to capture the essence. It's like capturing the genie's tail and saying, this aspect of the genie, I own it. And right. the genie's like, fuck you. I'm right. a fucking genie. Like, right. get get off me, bro. Right. You know, like, and that's kind of how I feel about it. So I understand mm-hmm. that. Yep. But it's also, you're not going to be able to actually capture the genie. The genie is everywhere. The magic is is there. You're just going to be able to profit off of and license off of if you're selling it for in this specific case, like a smoking cessation, you know, nicotine addiction drug and using it in that application, okay, then this company gets some, it's gonna be okay. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's I like, that's I like your I standpoint. Feel. I mean, I feel like any really cool or really powerful positive thing, tool activity eventually gets discovered and, and popularized. It's yeah. just, you can't hold a good thing down. And that's how I feel about, like when I was growing up, there was actually like an indie music section. There was like, there was great music that eventually became really popular. And then the people who had been part of that scene a long, long time, were like, oh, it's lame now, it's all. But it eventually evolves in the next generation that's, yeah. that, that goes through adolescence and teen years when it's the way it is, they evolve it into something new. This is the, this is the one of the pains of of becoming an adult is is understanding that none of us know what it's like to be 15 years old in 2021 unless we're 15 of course. <laughs> so, I think that it 
it's an it's really interesting. I I know you've followed this space for a long time. I've been cautiously keeping an eye on it and talking to people about it. And when Matt Johnson, I think, I mean, I'll just say it. Having heard him, I've never met him. I've heard him speak a few times. I mean, he's been this incredible bridge from Hopkins to these outside communities. In it, I think he's going about it right, from what I can tell. And I think we're going to look back in ten or twenty years, and I, I predict that um, Matt Johnson and colleagues will win a Nobel Prize, and they'll deserve it. Um, not that Nobel prizes matter; uh, it's it, much except to scientists, and the, they get some notoriety. But if ever there was an opportunity to do huge things for psychiatric medicine. I think he's he's right there, no and doubt. you need people on the inside. You, you got to have people on the inside. You got to have people on the outside. It's like government's never going to change, and so if people don't like it, then they should run for yeah, office. Work, work with the know, systems that with, we have, yeah. you know, instead of trying. And that was a big thing with the sixties. It was pushing against rather than saying co-opting and working right. with. It was like if you wear a necktie and jacket, you're yeah. like a whatever. Right. And that exactly. all of that energy is the antithesis of what the tr uh, true spirituality is, which is recognition that everybody is you living a different life anyways. So mm. whether they're in a Never suit heard or it not, said that way. I like you know, that. that's it. You uh -huh. boil it down, boil it down, boil it down. Like that's it. That's, mm -hmm. that's where it all comes from. And, and I think a lot of people forget that. I want to link you up. I don't know if you're familiar with uh, John Dean and his work out of University of Michigan on DMT. Oh no. Potentially hypothesizing that DMT it acts as a neurotransmitter in certain ways, the endogenous cerebral spinal fluid release of it. Yep. It's a little bit beyond me. It's interesting, but I think you yeah, guys would to. have a an interesting conversation. I'm hopefully going to get him on the podcast as yeah, well. Yeah, I'd love to, to chat with him. I mean, I've followed Matt's work. I'd love to learn. I've never done DMT. I've never, um, I, I'm, a lot of people ask me about it. Mm -hmm. And um, I know it is made endogenously, although I don't think it comes from the pineal, but that's that's a kind of it a- seemed like, It seemed like what John Dean's work was showing was that it's it's somehow- in the cerebral spinal fluid hmm. like that's where the that's where he actually was able to measure it and measure, measure the fluctuation but uh i'll learn more when we get on the podcast but i think that would yeah. be like a cool way for you to kind of merge some of your wisdom with some of his wisdom that he's and and he published these studies in uh in 2019 i'll uh, i'll share some of that but i want to go um i want to go back and just give people you know who've listened and and uh and give them because there's so many actionable probably as much as any podcast I've done, like really actionable things that people can uh, people can adopt, and and so if we could just go through and and uh, and kind of give people a little bit of, of a summary from where we started, you know, imagining that person. Let's just take the story of that person who's you know trying to work on a project, mm -hmm. you know, and let's go through and and we'll work together to just give that kind of all right, here you are, you got a project, you want to get something cool done, you want to get your art, your gift, your medicine, your work, you want to get this out into the world in the right way, you want it, you're going to start tomorrow, all right? So let's talk about just some of like the, the bullet points of what we talked about to give people a summation of these, uh, of these action steps. Yeah, well, I think um, everything works best on a backdrop of good sleep, and uh, we could have a whole other discussion about that, but I would say um, unless you need to be nocturnal, um, Avoid bright light exposure from 10 p.m. to 4 a.m. It's not the end of the world if you get up and use the bathroom or you you know briefly turn on the lights. But there are studies showing that bright light exposure in the middle of the night it punishes you by suppressing dopamine the next day and the next day. So try and get good night sleep. You know, master your sleep, and that's a whole other discussion. But that basically means getting as much bright light as is safely possible in your eyes in the morning and daytime, and as little in your eyes after about 10 p.m. Mm -hmm. And don't give up the great party. I would say, you know, 
great things happen between 10 p.m. and 2 a.m. <laughs> in life. So you, you don't want to live like a monk, you know, but make I just that- just had my 40th birthday. Exactly. So, so sparingly, um, but you wake up in the morning and I think it's, you know, some people wake up more slowly than others. Bright light exposure, hydration is going to help. A lot of this stuff is in your book. These are, because yeah. they get right to core physiology. Um, if morning time is the time when you start to feel some agitation, um, meaning you're alert and you're feeling, you know, people talk about feeling a calling. I, I would like to rephrase that as, because um, it's a little bit abstract. In this case, we're talking about feeling like a, a, the shoulds. You know, we, we've demonized the word should, but there's some internal shoulds that we should, like we should get some work done. We've been gifted this opportunity to evolve ourselves, evolve the world, 90 minutes, people can do this, but it's hard. So create some space, like clear the asteroid field, turn off Wi-Fi, use the program Freedom. I think it's a free download. If you can't turn it off and keep it off, just get your computer, it locks you out of your Wi-Fi get the phone off, put it in the other room, put it on the roof if you have to. If you live in an apartment, I don't know, give it to your neighbor um, and a thousand dollar check that you're gonna ask for back unless you ask for it back before. <laughs> I've done this actually, uh, I'm that bad. Real it, talk. <laughs> yeah, real talk. Um, and then dropping into work, I think we learned from you today. I love this, I'm gonna use this. I, I don't like the word hack because that implies that you're cheating the system. I think you're you're leveraging the system properly, which is, Ideally, you've shown up to the work with something done before. So in this case, it might be get your materials out, get that agitation, turn it into action. Get the materials out, start putting pen to paper or notes to the instrument or whatever it is. And and also, if you show up to that and you need to modulate your nervous system, remember the breaths we talked about. That's right. Emphasis on inhales, increasing more alertness, emphasis on exhales, dropping your kind of dropping that hyperactivity down a little bit so you can be in that that sweet spot, that yep. mid, middle zone. Yep. And there are a bunch of other things like relaxing your joints and face and stuff, but those tend to follow the deeper core relaxation. And yep. the physiological side, the double inhale, exhale is the fastest way I know to kind of bring your level of activation down. In doing like 10 quick deep inhale breaths with short exhales will wake you up if you're not feeling alert enough. Caffeine, hydration, sure. If you like caffeine, great. If you don't, don't use it. Um, I drink mate because it's like, it actually has a lot of electrolytes in it. So mm. it doesn't feel that like kind of harsh edge that yeah. coffee has, although I do like coffee as well. And then it's time to do your work, right? It's, it's the press field thing. It's time to do the work. And that resistance is expected. It's normal. It's healthy. And you should al almost see it as like a, a friend along the way with you. It's like a irritating friend that's poking you and trying to distract you, pushing back on you. And you can make it playful. Um, but there is a time to be serious about work. It's like, this is yours and to, and you don't want to squander it. So I say, lean into that work and understand that if it goes pretty well today, it's going to go even better the next day. Because these are, I think what people forget about neuroplasticity, the brain's ability to change itself in response to experience is that the circuits for focus also are subject to neuroplasticity. So the more you feel that discomfort in focus, the more easily focus comes the next day and the next day. And pretty soon... If something interrupts you for even a minute, it's going to feel irritating, but do yourself a favor and look back and realize that in a short period of time, this won't take a hundred days. We're talking about three, four days. You're going to be creating and working at a level that's far more efficient and productive than before. And then as you exit, I think we should take the tool that um, you provide, which is don't take things to the finish line that day, leave something undone. So the next day you have something very deliberate and very 
adaptive to focus your energy on. Yeah, let me add one more thing too that I don't think we actually got to talk about quite as much. So the the chemicals that you're going to be experiencing that create that agitation, norepinephrine, noradrenaline. That's right. Both of those. Yep. And dopamine actually operates in a way to suppress those. So, in, in, in a- so when you hit, a, like, let's say you're working and you're like, oh my goodness, I'm actually working. That recognition. So dopamine is very subjective, mm. which is cool. Like if you hear a song that you really like, you will release dopamine but I might not like that same song. A funny joke to one person is not a funny joke to the other. So, but that's great because it means that when you hit a point where you see yourself heading along the trajectory that's good for you, that you like, you should register that I'm headed in the right direction. That dopamine actually allows for the production of more norepinephrine and acetylcholine. Dopamine is actually the molecule from which epinephrine is made, which is incredible, which means that it's giving you more gas, more mileage. I can't talk about Goggin's thought process because I've never been in his head. All he's been in my lab and when, and and I know him and we've done some work together, but he clearly has a process where he can renew himself. He's he's talked about some people do it by seeing other people fail. He talked about that process. When you see other people going down, you're like, I must be do, still alive. That's a competitive scenario. It's appropriate for certain con- things like buds or competitive scenarios. But when you're alone with your work, you don't have that benefit. So what you have to do is find things in the work itself that you see as milestones. And when you hit one of those milestones, you need to say, wow, I'm in control of my behavior. I'm on the path. I'm I'm far, far away from the ultimate destination, but I'm on the path. And Which that, could be even facing the resistance. And this is a point you right. made in another one of the things that I loved. Like if you give yourself that love and credit and respect, you're starting to trigger that dopamine modulated response of saying like, I'm doing a good job right. just by sitting in here right. and enduring the resistance. So you may not have done shit yet. Hopefully with our you know theory that we talked about today, you will have knocked out mm-hmm. some of the easy stuff. But as you're sitting in the resistance, say, good job, bud, way to sit in the resistance. And then all of a sudden the dopamine system is activated and that's going to kind of grease the groove a that, little bit. Exactly. Uh, you said it better than I ever could. I mean, what you just described is the mechanistic description of what my colleague Carol Dweck calls the growth mindset. A lot of people think positive self-talk is about saying, I'm winning, I'm winning in in reference to the end goal. And usually that's not true because you're not at the end goal. Positive self-talk can take you down the wrong path. What you're talking about is the essence of real growth mindset. And Carol, I think would agree, which is when you invite the resistance and your ability to lean into resistance, when you reward yourself for that, then essentially there's nothing that you can't create or work through because you are now enjoying hard work. You are creating. You're you're re you're kind of doing a like jujitsu on the on the resistance. You're now making it your your guide and your propeller as opposed to like instead of a forewind, it's a wind you know wind behind you. So that's the really the that's the holy grail of this process. Mm-hmm. And then as you lean into it and you're knocking down the pins and accomplishing things and recognizing there's constantly going to be distraction. You're constantly going to be wondering about your phone and the thing you didn't do. And I try and keep in mind at that point, what was taught to me when I was a graduate student, I used to cut these brains. I used to slice these brains very thin. It takes about seven or eight hours to slice through a whole brain and you mount them on slides. And it's a very meditative process. But the rule is when you start to move the blade across the brain, because if you stop, it leaves this ugly groove. When you start to move the blade, a nuclear bomb could go off the building could be on fire and you are not gonna move your arm because you have to pull it very slowly to do this yeah. correctly on what's called the microtome. And you wanna do that. You wanna lathe through the material as if the 
Now, if the building is actually on fire, you, you should leave. But <laughs> A metaphor. A metaphor. But that should be your mindset. And then when you get to the end, I promise you, it, it, you'll, you'll kind of emerge from this like a tunnel. You'll kind of flicker. You know, that's probably at the end of one of these 90-minute cycles. There's nothing, there are some things, but there's nothing quite as satisfying. It's among the most satisfying experiences to have self-driven and regulated this process. And it will feel like a lot. And so the other thing that we know is extremely powerful for neuroplasticity to build up this capacity for focus and work is, or, any, or neuroplasticity of any kind is what's called non-sleep deep rest. I call it NSDR. To just distinguish it from meditation and other things, um, there's a now pretty extensive literature showing that a 20 or 30 minute shallow nap, or if you can't nap, just put your feet up and relax and do something that's kind of wordless probably not watch, probably not scroll Instagram, but maybe listen to music or just go for a walk or just zone out or take a nap or yoga nidra is a really great thing. You can find scripts for those. Um, I'll be putting some NSDR protocols out there on the web for free of charge um, that people can access. But in the meantime, those are the other ones I recommend. That we know can accelerate neuroplasticity. There's a paper published this last year in a really great journal, Cell Report. So if people are listening yep. to this podcast now and they're like man that's a lot of good information i want to retain as much of it as possible eat some if, lunch and then take a nap <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah right well we we just know that you come out of those non-sleep deep rest or shallow sleep things they, these would be anywhere from 10 minutes to 90 minutes mm -hmm. not longer than 90 minutes because then you can get kind of groggy you don't have to do the nap immediately after the learning or the activity sometime that day would be ideal but we know that it accelerates neuroplasticity because neuroplasticity and all the great changes in the brain and nervous system are triggered during the activity, but they actually take place away from the activity. It's just like working out in the gym. Yeah, The gym is a little misleading because blood rushes to the muscles. And so you get a glimpse of what it might look like, mm -hmm. but then it- Which is what we're about to do. <laughs> oh, we're going to train today. That's yeah, right. We're going to train it's today. So the, go easy on me. Yeah. Right? I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a biology I'm professor. I'm looking at you over here. I think no, it's vice bi versa. No, no. But we'll see. I'm a biology professor. But, the, um, <laughs> but, the, uh, but those periods of deep rest allow you to consolidate the material much more quickly and more deeply. And then you mentioned that there's sometimes also a period in the afternoon. So mm -hmm. definitely nourish, take care of your email, take care of your social connections. These are important things to be able to continue to do work. But a lot of people, if you have a high alertness phase in the morning, a lot of people have a second phase in the afternoon or, or late evening. It could be about 90 minutes as well, where um, because you're a little bit sleepy or just a little bit calmer, there, there's a tendency to have a greater ability to do creative work. Mm -hmm. And creative work is really about taking existing things and rearranging them in new ways and feeling comfortable and relaxed enough to do, to be, to do that. Now, creative work, of course, also has a very rigid implementation phase because it can't all be just you know throwing paint on the wall and seeing what sticks. Um, it's also about saying, "Oh, that's the thing," and then starting to funnel it down that pathway. But that's it does seem like I've never, I've almost never. Now looking back at all the poetry I've written, I can't recall writing poetry in the day. It's always I'm right. always writing my poems at night. It's not a. It's I'm not a poet as a you know it's not my profession but i love writing poetry i write it quite frequently and, and all the poems i can think of it's always me in the evening or at night yeah the, the the scientists and computer scientists and engineers would say something and i say it sometimes this way that you know that creativity is in the non-linearities it's about breaking the space-time rules in kind of interesting ways um and what we see as really exciting and creative from the from the perspective of the observer tends to be really it tends to be focused on 
some kind of greater rule emerging from it. So like a, a Rothko to some people is just a bunch of paint blocks on a canvas. But for those that appreciate art, what was so incredible about Rothko's is that he captured something in what they call color space. He was able to use the absence of white on the canvas as a way to make colors pop out and interact in different ways. Now he doesn't say that, right? But th there's, there's something about a Rothko that makes it important work. Mm -hmm. And I'll be willing to bet that he didn't do that by thinking, I'm gonna eliminate all the white. Mm -hmm. And then I'm gonna do this and I'm gonna do that. He, he probably dabbled and he, you know, he tinkered. And they always say, you know, evolution in nature, you know, she's a tinkerer. She tinkers and then sees what works. And, yeah. then, and so that's why I think having a period of time each day, which I look at as the kind of the gift time, it's not so much an obligation, it's more of a gift. It's like, you have a, an opportunity to create something totally new based on your experience. And I guess we should include the collective that's wired into your yeah. maps. And that tends to come at night under conditions where you're really relaxed, where you're, where you're not imposing these rigid rules about the game is played like this. We, there are four innings, they last this long, there's a half time. You, you, you're sort of like, eh, maybe we throw the ball, maybe we kick the ball. You know, maybe we, maybe the ball talks, you know, these kinds of things. And now you can see why certain states of mind lend themselves really well to creativity because they break space-time rules. And so I think having a second phase where you allow yourself to break space-time rules and not expect too much from it, because we know that great creative works come from um, some degree of play and looseness. Sure. I think um, if people were interested in impose, imposing, <laughs> there's a imposing, I, in allowing themselves a second 90-minute block to do creative work, um, it also, it's a lot of fun and you can, um, and amazing things can yeah, come it's, from it. Yeah, it's a you get to. You yeah, you get to. I, I always think of it like the creative stuff, I have to earn it in the morning. Yeah. But I tend to be a little <laughs> bit like, you know, a little bit masochistic in this way. So, and, and I'm aware that, you know, from having done some, from um, some teaching and stuff that every once in a while, someone will come to me and say, you know, all the, like the examples you give of like hard driving stuff, that's great. But some of us feel like we're really doing that to ourselves all the time. And we're looking for some peace. And I would say, okay, channel the agitation but also allow yourself these periods of peace because I think they're, they are where great works come from. Ebb and flow, ebb and flow. Yeah. This has been beautiful, man. I wanna do, I wanna plan, put it out there that I'd love to do another show on fear, hypnosis, some of these other different things. Sure. I have all these notes. We got to a, a good amount to. of those, but I definitely wanna go, I wanna go to the lab and I want oh, you. Yeah, I want to figure out what what freaks me out. Oh yeah, we, because it was for me. It was always alien abduction. So I don't know if you got that in the VR. Yeah, well, we could probably get it in. <laughs> if there. you can dial that we'll, one in, we'll find your I pain points. Pull my pants. We'll, we'll find your for pain sure. points. Um, we'll find your pain points. The you know the lab. Um, fortunately, you know we're still able to run human subjects. It's um, it's a place where we can really evaluate how people manage under fear, but also cognitive load. Like some people are just. Um, can manage their internal real estate. It's not a test. That's the other thing is we, we really like it to be something where people are able, we're able to discover and people are able to discover a bit about how we manage yeah. sensory experience. And, um, but there are some, some scary things in there, at least to some people. <laughs> I'm fun. looking forward to it, brother. Um, also you have a new podcast that you launched recently, which is you just really doing an amazing job exploring these topics in detail. So I can absolutely recommend that. So where can people find that? Thanks. Yeah. So it's called the Huberman lab, not, not, um, very, uh, uh, 
uh, creative name, but it's Huberman Lab podcast. It's in all the typical places and on YouTube. And I teach neuroscience there. It does run sequentially. So like if you start at the beginning, you can learn all about sleep for a month. And the next month is about plasticity. I'd stay on topic for four or five episodes and then shift to the next. Yeah. Um, and the comment section are where we actually get input so that we can respond to what people want to learn more about or clear up any misunderstandings. So that's, um, that's where I spend a lot of my time and energy these days. Beautiful, man. And just so grateful that you're operating as you do and, uh, and that the function as a bridge is so important and you're doing such a great job of bridging these concepts and language and your persona and your relatability that people can actually have access to it and see a little bit of themselves in you and see, you know, obviously your mastery and your work, but have it translated. So that's a huge gift. Uh, I would tell you to keep going, but I know you are already. So compulsively uh, <laughs> at times, but, but thank you. And, and I also yeah. want to acknowledge that, um, uh, thanks for bringing me on today. I've been a fan for a very long time and paid attention to what you've done and are doing. And, um, you know, you've been a real pioneer in the space of raising um, interesting and hard topics, hard for some, but, and, and you know, cracking open and shining some light on things like, let's have this conversation. And so um, I really appreciate the time and uh, having me on here today. Absolutely, brother. Absolutely. Thank you so much, fam. We'll see you next week. Thanks for tuning into this podcast with Andrew Huberman. Please check out his podcast and also look into what's going on at the Huberman Lab. He's on the cutting edge of so many things. It was a pleasure to share this conversation with you, and I will see you next week.